This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Well, I went to bed last night thinking about Halloween candy, of course. I was, uh, I don't know, what do you call that, a sugar high? Was I, I, I had a couple of Butterfingers that were quote-unquote left over from Halloween last night. And by left over, I mean in every household, in every suburban household in America, it becomes somebody's duty kind of... Maybe why, if you have kids, why your kids are getting ready for bed. It becomes somebody's duty to man the front door for those straggling Halloween trick-or-treaters. And so, you know, I've talked about it on this show, full-size candy bars at our house. I think we had 196 full-size candy bars that were purchased. And I think the official tally... I got this morning was only about 125 of those were given away. So, you know, you got to do something with the extras that are left in the bowl. And while I was waiting last night for those straggling trick-or-treaters who are generally teenagers who, eh, kind of iffy on whether or not they should be trick-or-treating. If you're in a costume, I'll reward you. If you're going to come up to my door in a costume, I'll reward you. That's, That's the threshold. But if you're not wearing a costume, you're not getting a candy bar. You're going to get a scolding. So as I'm waiting for those trick-or-treaters last night, I said, well, I might as well have myself a Butterfinger, full-size Butterfinger. It's a, it, it's my, it, it probably is my favorite Halloween candy bar. Everybody always talks about this, all those radio show hosts, everybody always tweeting about it, posting on social media, what's your favorite candy? I'll tell you what your favorite candy is. It's the candy that's in front of you. That's left over at the end of the night. That's your favorite candy. There was there was a whole bunch of Butterfingers. There were some Baby Ruths. Yeah, we went big. Uh, there were some Snicker bars. Uh, I noticed that a lot of people took the 100 Grand bars. They took the Kit Kats. Anna purchased all these. The Hershey, the Hershey Crunch. She went big on all this stuff. But I was left with a lot of Butterfingers. And so I had myself a Butterfinger while I was examining the college football playoff rankings that had come out earlier yesterday in that announcement that uh, happened around 4 o'clock, 4.30 uh, Pacific time. You know, Oregon at 6, Washington at 5. What is the committee doing? What message are they sending? And I started kind of trying to think about, you know, what did the committee value while I was ingesting a Butterfinger, and then I finished it. And then and then I said to myself, you know, are, are, is the committee trying to tell us that a road loss against another higher high-ranked team, Washington, are they trying to tell us that that road loss, combined with an impressive win on the road against Utah, is better than Texas at number seven having beat Alabama? Because it used to be that you could almost 
you know, assure yourself that the selection committee was going to value a big win more than it was going to value a close loss. Like a win is better than a loss. A win over a highly ranked team is better than a loss to a highly ranked team. But in the end, I think what the committee did is they trusted their eyes a little bit and trusted their instincts and weighted the Pac-12 conference in a way that surprised me, frankly. You know, I yesterday as the rankings came out, my rapid reaction was, hey, Washington and Oregon have a legitimate opportunity if the win out, if you know, if Washington wins out, wins the Pac-12 championship, go, you know, will go to the playoff. Like that, an undefeated Washington team is going to be a really strong candidate based on where they currently are in the rankings. There's just no way that I think the committee could pull them back. Now, I listened to the remarks that the committee members made in sort of talking about the teams, and one of the uh, knocks on Washington was that Washington's wins over Stanford, not impressive, and Arizona State, not impressive, did not obviously impress the selection committee. It's why they weren't fourth. It's why they were fifth. And so they were held back because their wins and the margin of victory in those wins and the quality of opponent, I believe the chair of the selection committee said, hey, those teams have a combined four wins, and Washington struggled against them. That hurt Washington a little bit, but I think the bigger picture is that Washington's going to get to play Utah at home. They're going to get to play USC. They're going to go to Corvallis and play Oregon State. They're going to play the Apple Cup. That's the final four games of the season for Washington. And if Washington goes 4-0 and and then goes to the conference championship game, it doesn't matter who they play there. If they win that game, they're in the playoff. Uh, frankly, by virtue of the fact that Ohio State and Michigan you know, ranked 1-3 and three in the poll, one of those two teams is going to lose. They're going to play each other. And so somebody's going to have, and they're going to lose late in the year. That's a November 25th game. It's the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And so Washington's got a path to the playoff. That's easy to see. And so does Oregon. And frankly, Oregon's loss to Washington now looks like a nothing burger. And in fact, it looks like it helped Oregon in some weird, convoluted way. Like, no doubt if Oregon had won that game, I think Oregon would be in the top four. I think they'd be sitting at number four. But they lose that game, and they're sitting at six, and they're still in the same position as they would be had they won the game. I think if Oregon wins out, uh, you know, beats Cal this weekend, beats USC, uh, has a, uh, a clear path to uh, beating Oregon State if they can win that Civil War game, if they can avoid blowing a fourth quarter, third quarter lead like they did last year. They go to the conference championship game. If they get Washington, great. It's the matchup that I think a lot of people want to see. If they don't get Washington, they get somebody else, then that's okay too. Because I think if Oregon wins out, wins the conference championship game, same as Washington, Oregon at six is going to be Oregon at three or four. Oregon's going to get into the playoff. And frankly, by the same logic that Ohio State and Michigan got to play each other. So that's a quick takeaway. But then I start thinking deeper about, you know, what is this selection committee doing? Because you have a, you have a pool of four, which is kind of stupid if you think about it. Like, you know, you have five power conferences You've got the group of five teams. You know, we know all along that there should have been an expanded playoff. The 12-team playoff cannot get here fast enough. It would take out the question about, you know, who's going to get left out, which conference is going to get hosed. You know, if Oklahoma wins the Big 12 Conference or Texas wins the Big 12 Conference, they're in. 
If uh, Georgia wins the SEC, they're in. Whoever wins the Big Ten is in. Pac-12 champions should be in. Should be a group of five. The best, highest-ranked group of five schools should be in. We all know that that's coming. We all know that that's on the horizon. But I just got left, went to bed last night kind of thinking about what message the committee was trying to send. Stephen, did you get a sense of what the committee was trying to tell us with these rankings? Yeah, I kind of agree with you that it's almost as if Oregon got credited for losing, which I, and it did seem like that around the way is they didn't even necessarily take into account who you played. It's just how you looked in the game because you look at Georgia, they haven't played anybody, but they're number two. You look at Michigan, they haven't played anybody. They're number three. And you look at Florida State, they've beaten some solid teams so far. Duke, Clemson. Uh, you know they've beaten some actual teams, and they get fourth. You look at Washington; they beat Oregon, who's number six, and they're number five. So it it, it looked like the committee was going off of reputation. It looks like they're going off of what ha- you know how you looked on the field, not the actual result. But if you were close, they're going to give you credit. And it wasn't even about the wins; it was about who you've played and how you look. So yeah, I mean, I I don't agree with that. Like I think ultimately the results should matter a little bit more. But at the same time, if you're Oregon, you're happy they're doing it that way. I think if you're Washington, I think you're okay with it because you still have things ahead of you. But, yeah, it seems as if the committee was saying, you know what, we're going to go more off of uh, reputation and how it looks rather than the actual result. But is it right? Because I, I look at Oregon's loss at Washington, and anybody who saw that game walked away from that game going, gosh, Dan Lanning, you know, easily Oregon could have won that game had Dan Lanning made one different decision on kicking a field goal versus fourth down. Road game, tough environment. Michael Penix Jr. throws the late TD pass. Oregon comes down. Oregon misses the field goal. It kind of suggested to me that the fact that the Pac-12 games are getting big, big exposure, that the committee's seeing them more. The committee watched that game. There's no way around that. Like They watched that game, they saw it, and they compared those two teams. And they said, hey, we can't put Oregon in front of Washington because Washington won the game. But, gosh, they need to be right behind Washington. They can't be two, three, four slots behind Washington. They need to be right there. And I don't mind that. like Because, ultimately, if you have this stupid system, and it is stupid to have four teams in a playoff, like, either do it or don't do it. Like, the BCS era with two teams was ridiculous. Four teams is only slightly less ridiculous. But, you know, if you're going to go with four teams, I need the best four teams to be there. And I think what the committee was doing was trying to solve a problem for later where they were going to have to leapfrog the Pac-12 champion over a Texas or somebody else and then have to justify it. I think they'd rather do it now because I think they know in the end that if Washington wins out or Oregon wins out, they've got to be in the top four. I don't mind that. I was just a little surprised because I'm used to the Pac-12 Getting uh, dissed in these uh, in these r- playoff rankings, like I, you know, I, when Dave Bartu said, "Hey, Oregon might be as low as eight, nine, or 10, I was bracing myself. I had written on Sunday, I thought Oregon deserved to be six after the teams that were obvious, but they 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 placed Oregon as the highest rated one loss team in America, and I think that's where they belong, don't they? Well, I, was, I think so. Like what uh, my eyes tell me, yes, but you go and you look. Texas went on the road and beat Alabama. Like, how can you not credit them for doing that when Oregon had their chance? Ultimately, yeah, they were probably the better team when they played Washington, but they ultimately lost the game. And I think that should account for something. So I was shocked that they were the top one, you know, one loss team in the nation. But it does look like they are looking at the eye test right now. Oregon come off that win at Utah. They look like they should be a college football playoff yeah. team, but 
the results say differently. They've lost the one big game they had. They haven't beaten anybody good besides Utah. Like, well, you, yeah, they, I think it was this. Like, okay, look at Texas. Texas lost to Oklahoma. That's a good loss, 34-30. Oregon lost to Washington. It was a good loss. Pro- difference is the Texas game was a home game. Well, it's a neutral site. Okay, well, Texas with the I'm looking at the standing. Texas yeah. with the home home team on this thing, but Oregon loses a true road game. Texas loses 34-30. So is the committee telling us that Al- the Alabama win was not as impressive as Oregon's win over Utah? That, that's what it's. I feel like that's what they're saying, and that's I feel like that's not how it should be, right? Like Alabama is a much better team than Utah, and for Texas to go on the road and they dominated that game, they won by two scores, like. They should be ahead of Oregon. They really should be, just based off the results on the field. But what the committee is saying is, you know what, they love the way Oregon played against Washington, and they should have won that game, which I think there's a big way, there's a, there's a way of saying, you know, of actually going and winning on the field and being the better team on the field. You have to learn yeah. how to win. I think Dan Lanning's still learning how to win in these big-time games, but he's going to have it in front of him. But I don't know, John. I just... I was shocked that they were number six. I was actually shocked Oregon State was 16. They were the third-ranked two-loss team. Like, yeah. they are getting respect, too. So you're right. The Pac-12 getting a lot of respect here in that first go-round. Yeah, and, I th- and a lot of Oregon State fans were, I think, understandably disappointed after Oregon State lost to Arizona last Saturday, lose by a field goal, feel like they should have been in that game, should have taken the points before half, road loss. I think the committee is looking at Oregon State and going, hey, their two losses are both on the road, both by three points, that's very respectable. Now, it's not over for Oregon State. Playoff might be over, but it's not over. The it being a, a shot at the conference championship. I was thinking about this in yes, during yesterday's show and while the uh, trick-or-treaters were coming to the door last night, and it is evident to me that there's going to be some chaos here down the stretch in the Pac-12, and I think it starts this week with Washington playing this game against USC. I think, you know, it, it's anybody's guess who's going to win that game. I don't think any of us can, with a straight face, predict what we think is going to happen in that game because I think um, we all know we've seen this conference, uh, you know, cannibalize itself. And Washington has not looked good in successive weeks against bottom feeders in the Pac-12. And we've kind of held that up as an example that, hey, the conference is great top to bottom. But also, I think there's some truth, if we're being real here, and I mean this with all due respect to Kalen DeBoer, there's some truth in the fact or the theory that Washington is just not playing its best football coming out of the win in Week 7 over Oregon. They just have not been at their best. Well, here they go on the road to USC, then home against Utah, and it's it's possible Washington could lose one of those games. All right, Just keep that in the back of your mind. Now it's a one-loss Washington team. you got a one-loss Oregon team. In the bracket, you got a two-loss UCLA team and a two-loss Oregon State team. These are your your uh, contenders, as I see them, for maybe that second position. So that here comes Washington and Oregon State playing head-to-head in Week 12, and and Washington's playing Utah in Week 11. So there's a chance there if Washington drops one of the next two games, if they continue to just not play well, that they go to Research Stadium fighting for their lives because what they don't want to do is end up in a two-way or a three-way tie with Oregon State and have a head-to-head loss to the Beavers. Same goes for the Ducks. The Ducks are a one-loss outfit right now. They arrive at the final game of the season in Week 13 on November 24th at home against Oregon State. And if you give me two-loss Oregon State against one-loss Oregon in that game, 
I would venture to say that if Oregon State wins that game, we're going to have a multi-team tie for either first or second place. And I think, you know, it's anybody's guess who gets to Vegas. So it's not over mathematically for the Beavers right now. And further, there's a brand-building exercise that's going on at Oregon State. You know, I, I'm, I know that the president at Oregon State, Jayathi Murthy, and the athletic department staff, they've been holding meetings regularly. There was a series of about two weeks where they were meeting at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they were meeting all day, and they were talking about their brand, the enhancement of their brand, how do we position the, ourselves for the next round of realignment, what can we control, what can't we control. And, you know, they've been really focused on how do they build brand. Oregon does a great job with brand building. Look at what happens on the Monday after they play a game. A video release of a several-minute video on social media celebrating their win at Utah, uh, emphasizing their brand, great production quality, great film work, great music. It's fun. It's better than anything anybody's doing. It's better than what the Blazers are doing. It's way better than what Oregon State is doing. So Oregon State's got to take a page from that. The only difference between Oregon and Oregon State in the last 20 years is Phil Knight and Oregon's brand. That's it. you got the same geography. You're in the same state. Neither one of you are in a major media market. The only difference is what Phil Knight has invested in football and then what Oregon has done along with Nike to help elevate its brand. So yesterday when the rankings came out, it did jump out at me that we all expected to see Oregon State in the rankings. Nobody was surprised to see them as a top 16 team. It was just like, there they are, that's where they belong. Now, Oregon State has to continue to win. It has to continue to emphasize and underscore the idea that they belong, they belong. They're one of the top 15 teams. It's not a big deal that they're there. Look at them, look at them, look at them. They need to be trumpeting that. They need to be celebrating that. They need to be putting that out everywhere so everyone can see it. They need to be uh, reminding people they're not Oklahoma State. They're the other OSU. They need to be doing that over and over to the point where it's nauseating and the rest of college football knows that Oregon State is a really good football school. You need to build that brand. So being 16th with two losses, it's not over for Oregon State. How do you see Oregon State's trajectory here in the next few weeks, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about just what you got in front of you. Oregon State has everything in front of them still. Like, that, that is the impressive part about Oregon State. Even though they've lost the two games, you know, whether they're playing spoiler or they're actually trying to get into the Pac-12 title game, it's all in front of them with the Washington and the Oregon State game. So it, it's a huge opportunity for Oregon State. But, John, I do I do qu- have a question for you. We've been talking about expectations and you know how Oregon State's have raised this season with Jonathan Smith and what he's done for that program. And you look at that schedule that they have coming forward, they should probably get two wins in a row against Colorado and Stanford. But is it a disappointment if they go 0-2 against Washington and Oregon? Do they need to split those? It, like, if you're an Oregon State fan and you're going into that game and you're, uh, you'd be, what, you'd be 8-2 and going into those games? Yeah. And you split those? Are you happy? Are you mad if you lose both? You can't. 8-4, is that you a disappointment? What's the goal? What's the goal? You want to go to Vegas or you just want to have a nice season? Because uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, splitting them is a nice season. It is. It's and, a really and nice season. you lose both? Should, would the fan, should the fans disappointment. be disappointment? Disappointment. Because 8-4 eight, eight and four wasn't the goal this year. It's a step back. you know. And, and so I think, I think Oregon State, to have a great season, needs to win them all. And, and I think if they beat Washington and they beat Oregon, I think they're going to be in, it, in the mix for that second position as a tiebreaker in the, in the Pac-12 championship Well, they would game. for sure because they'd have the two losses just the same as Oregon. They'd have yep. a tiebreaker of them. So it would come yep. down to basically what USC does at that point. Right, and, and, or UCLA. And it, it, 
because UCLA has the benefit of not playing Washington or Oregon this year. They don't play either school, and so they kind of skate along. And you know they've been pretty good, but I don't. You know we all. I don't think any of us think they're better than Oregon or Washington. Uh, or they haven't played better than those schools. And certainly Oregon State beat their pants off. But um, I I think what Oregon would lean into if they do lose the Civil War football game is they would have to hope that it's a multi-team tiebreaker and it does not become a head-to-head situation. Because any two-team tiebreakers, obviously the first tiebreaker is who won the head-to-head game. But when you go to multi-team, so if there's three teams with two losses, then you go to the uh, to the win percentage against each other, and then you go to the win percentage against the next highest-ranked uh, team in the conference, and then it's, you know, it goes down several steps before it gets to a coin flip. But it's like... Um, Oregon State would be in it, and that's all you can hope for given that you've gone to Pullman and you laid an egg and you scrambled back in the fourth quarter to make it close, and then you, you, you went to Tucson and you didn't get it done. So Oregon State has got to play well this week at Colorado. I'm going to Boulder. I want to see this thing in person. It's going to be a late game, but I'm going anyway. I just want to see it. Um, and, you know, I, they, got, they have to beat Colorado. like that, And then they have to beat Stanford. Come on. And then it sets up nicely. It sets, you know, it's a two-game season now to set up a two-game season because then it's Washington at home and Oregon on the road. Good luck to the Beavers. And, and John, should the, Be- the Beavers shouldn't be taking this game lightly against Colorado. They, they haven't performed great on the road this season. So, it's, you know, they should beat Colorado, like you said, but at the same time, you can't be taking this lightly. Like, that's a tough place to play, especially at night. They're going to have to come in and play well to beat Colorado. They're going to, and, I, and I'm just curious how Colorado's going to respond. I think there's no telling. Uh, we'll find out next, though. We're going to go to our Beavers insider. He's been on 750thegame.com all season long. TJ Matthewson's going to be joining us to talk about the Beavs as they will head to Colorado on Saturday. Later in the show, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, will join us in the 5 o'clock hour. I've got some thoughts on Dan Lanning. Does it appear to you that he's learned from last season? Probably. But can he learn from this season? What's what's the growth curve for Dan Lanning? We'll talk about it in the 4 o'clock hour. Leave it here. Oregon State coach Jonathan Smith will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour, the happy hour. Want you here for it. TJ Matheson has uh, been in and around the Oregon State camp all season long. You can read his work at 750thegame.com as our insider. He's joining us now to talk about the Beavers. All right, your rapid reaction when you saw the Beavers at 16 in the college football playoff rankings, TJ, about where they should be, or were you surprised? That's where they should be, and I think Vegas, If you, I mean, look at commute, computer models and such like that. I think they would also agree that the Beavers should be right around that spot. We, when we look down at Saturday's loss, you look at it, they, they of course lost to, to Arizona, a very hot team, but you don't come away thinking that the Beavers are some team that's now significantly worse than Arizona. I don't think that's the case. There's few things here and there that you can nitpick, and those things that you do nitpick do drop them from 11 in the AP poll to now 16 in the college football playoff. But it, it seemed about accurate, and I think most people agree, and it would also be shown that there's still a lot of head for this team coming up here in the, the coming weeks. Important game at Colorado. Always curious out of a loss how Oregon State or any other team will react. Do you have a sense of what this team will be like coming off of a disappointing loss at Arizona? 
I, I have a sense that they need to make sure they don't show some sort of fatal flaw or crux on the road. I feel like, John, in every game, road game in the Pac-12 this season they played, they have shown something that could lose them a game. And when they come home to Research Stadium, that's not really the case. And that's got to be frustrating for the players. That's got to be frustrating for the coaching staff. So when you look at this late-night game on Saturday, you look at it and say, okay, well, we have probably the biggest advantage we have had in the trenches all season outside of an FCS game against UC Davis. We can't let anything else disrupt that. I mean, you can't let turnovers disrupt that. You can't let uh, more poor quarterback play disrupt that. You can't let penalties disrupt that. When you have such an advantage as a two-touchdown favorite on the road, there's something that you know you shouldn't do. Otherwise, I would expect the energy to be pretty high, and this team can constantly just echoing echoing the week-to-week message to take Sunday and flush it and then move on to the next, and that's what I expect we'll see. Jonathan Smith said the decision to try the fake field goal at the end of the first half was a bad call. It, does this haunt him all season, or do you take this? You take the good with the bad, knowing that some of that aggression has been part of the success at Oregon State? It might haunt people if they, they go ahead and win out and uh, the tiebreakers work out, make their way into the championship, and somehow win a Pac-12 championship. Because you would think you'd think back to the, the this past weekend in Tucson and a three-point difference was the difference between a tie at the end of regulation and winning at, uh, and losing at the end of regulation. So for some, some people thought that this team could potentially be a dark horse playoff contender. If that's really what you thought and what you expected, and some person listening to this is one of the more people down this week because of Saturday's result, well, then if the results play out, as I just mentioned, then it, then it will hang a dark cloud of what you would have from Jonathan Smith. I'm sure he would make some – decisions that people would love down the stretch if they're going to go ahead and go beat probably they'd probably have to beat three top 10 teams in a row to go pull off that feat but it, it, so if your expectation at the end of the season was higher than just a Pac-12 championship which I think realistically was for some people then I think it absolutely hangs over some people's heads maybe not Jonathan's maybe not the players but certainly for people watching and people who want to see this program uh, achieve as much as they can. Right now, uh, DJ Uyunglele. I mean, he's playing all right. I think he's been okay, but I am uh, I'm watching him slowly process on the field. Um, he still may, you know, he might be the last person sometimes to see that the play's not there or is there. It's just it's really strange to watch him process during a pass play in particular, or when he decides to tuck the ball and run. He's just a half a second too late, and he gets. He gets taken down by a defensive lineman. You, you know, we can all see it on television a little before him, or the broadcaster's going, "He's got a guy deep," you know, and he he doesn't see it. Uh, what do you see happening with DJ? Uh, and and how happy or unhappy should Oregon State fans be with the quarterback play right now? I think they should be happy with it, but I think we can also acknowledge that maybe a bit of the game plan on Saturday wasn't great. They did try to throw the ball downfield a lot. There was a lot of those longer developing routes that when DJ has an off night like he had on Saturday night, he's inaccurate, completes just 16 of 30 passes, then that's going to screw up your sequencing of downs, even if the Beavers are having a successful running night. And they did, on average, on a per per rush average, had a good rushing night on Saturday. But they didn't really have the volume of it. And when you're going out there on second down and seven or first down and ten and 
you're trying to get a play-action pass for 25 yards, and DJ is a little inaccurate. He misses a read. There's a guy running open downfield that he doesn't see, and, and he has to throw the ball away. Well, that you know throws off the whole rhythm of the offense, and then DJ is really behind the sticks, and then the mistakes really start to pile up. We have, I mean, we've seen good. I think still DJ, if we're if we're talking about trends, he's still on the upward trend as a quarterback because after the bye, I mean, before the bye, it was his two best weeks as an Oregon State quarterback. He played very well against a very good UCLA defense who dominated the Buffaloes last week at the Rose Bowl and then had one of the best passing performances in Oregon State history against California. So I don't think we can sort of just ignore that when we're talking in context of what we see from DJ. I, I think it's a mix of you know him missing some opportunities, and then I think some bad sequencing compiles on top of that and, and leads to an underwhelming offensive performance. Aiden Childs, will we see more of him as this season unfolds, meaning as – you know, you mentioned the ranked teams that they'll encounter. I just sort of wonder if Oregon State hands the keys to the future at some point or maybe, um, you know, blends him in a little more, more than a series here or there. What do you expect with Aiden Giles? We're going to keep seeing him. I, my biggest question is, are they going to put him in when the Beavers are down? And the answer is yes, they did. They put him in against the Wildcats when the Beavers were or down in the in the football game in the first half, and he still went down there and scored some points. I've I've no reason to believe they would stop playing him. I I, I think in this world of uh, of NIL and promises they kept to Aiden that they want to keep playing him. Part of the the reason Aiden Childs decided to come to Oregon State was, you know, they they said there's we're seriously considering playing you no matter what, no matter who our quarterback is, doesn't matter if DJ's here doesn't matter if DJ's going to start the season. We're going to still play you. And he talked about that when we finally got to talk to him last week. Very thankful for the Oregon State communication staff making a true freshman quarterback available. But they, they did for Aiden Childs last week. And he specifically said, he's like, Jonathan Smith was real with me, that I'm going to play if I if I earned it. And it sounds like, you know, he has earned it. And, and the results on the field showing that he has earned it. And he's, he's capable of making plays. I'm, I'm, I'm just, when we get down to the nitty-gritty of the season and, it's a top 10 Washington team and a top 10 Oregon team to finish the season. They still want to, do they still want him out there? Do they want him with the rhythm of the offense? Do they want if DJ has a good first drive, a good first two drives, take DJ out for what it would probably be six, seven minutes of game time, given the drive on the other opponent's side and the drive on your side. And is that going to throw the offense off rhythm? I mean, that's a decision for the coaching staff to make, but from everything we've seen, he's going to keep playing and I don't see a reason why he would stop playing. We're talking to T.J. Matheson. He is our insider at 750thegame.com. You can read his insights. What do you expect for the Colorado game? Uh, Oregon State has not been good on the road. Colorado has uh, been really shaky, clunky, however you want to put it. What are, what are your expectations on Saturday night in Boulder? First up, avoid mistakes, as, as I mentioned earlier. But second, they're, they're going to have such an advantage along the line of scrimmage, especially while the Beaver offense is on the field and the Colorado defense is on the field. The, the Colorado defense, their, their strength is, is getting turnovers. But outside of that, I mean, the Beavers line up and just hammer the football. We, we haven't seen them really hammer the football consistently against a, a, a team in, in a couple of weeks. So now that we're finally, the Beavers finally see – what the weakness of that defense is. Keep the ball away from Travis Hunter on the outside. He made a couple of amazing plays against UCLA in the Rose Bowl last week. Keep the ball away from him. Run the ball 
60% of the time. I, I, I think that would do it. I think even if Jake Levengood is questionable this week, it didn't sound too great when Jonathan talked about him on Monday. Tanner Miller's done a good job, though, there at center, even with some injuries along the offensive line. The Beavers just run up and run the football right at Colorado. They should have a ton of success, and, and it beautifully counters the the other side of the football where Colorado cannot run the football. They don't have a great offensive line. Sadur Shanders is, uh, has been the most sacked quarterback in college football, and the Beavers' defensive line has been really good at getting pressure this year. So they can force him in completions. They get him on the ground a few times. They throw the Colorado offense out of sync as well. They get some shorter drives, and all of a sudden the time of possession starts adding up, and the Beavers can really – milk this game away with some of the really explosive playmakers on offense. I, I, I don't see any reason why the Beavers should lose this game, given the trenches, and when you have an advantage this significant, you should take care of business. All right, TJ, I appreciate your work on the Beavers. We'll have you on next week. There's TJ Matthewson. You can read his work at 750thegame.com. Oregon State's got to win at Boulder. You, you can't, with a straight face, say that, hey, you let one get away in Tucson. Oh, you let one get away in Washington uh, at Pullman. You can't do that again for a third time this season. This team has to win road games. It has to show what it know that it knows what to do on the road. And if you're going to give your fan base and the rest of the country any kind of um, supporting evidence for you being number 16 in the college football playoff rankings, you do that by going to Boulder and running the football down Colorado's throat. They haven't stopped anybody on the ground this season. We got our big splash coming up. A uh, little bit of breaking news. Bobby Knight, the uh, former Indiana University and Texas Tech University coach, has passed away at the age of 83. I covered Knight in the late 1990s. He uh, was never boring. He was a controversial, polarizing figure, undoubtedly a winner, uh, and a guy who was one of the great teachers in the game of college basketball. Our big splash is coming up. Well, Bobby Knight passed away at the age of 83 today, according to his family. Um, The uh, release going out on social media. I covered Bob Knight as a beat reporter in 1998 in the 98-99 basketball season. Um, I uh, remember going out to Indiana. I knew nothing about the state of Indiana when I took that job, and I remember... Uh, you know, I was working at the Santa Cruz Sentinel at the time. I was covering high school basketball, a little bit of community college. I would occasionally get to go cover an NFL game or a Major League Baseball game. But by and large, it was a big step up for me to cover a college beat full time and especially to be on a program like Indiana basketball. And I had the fortune of um, the high school coach at the local high school at Santa Cruz High School at the time happened to be Pete Newell, Jr., That's right. It's the son of Pete Newell Sr., who was Bobby Knight's mentor. And so the Newell family knew Bob Knight like uh, like he was a son in that family. And so it was really interesting to have that experience and have that knowledge of him prior to going out there to cover that team. And it was really interesting to me to um, to go to Big Ten Media Day for the first time. In 1990, uh, 1998, I believe it was must have been like no, you know, October of 1998, September of 1998. Whenever they had held Big Ten Media Day, I remember it was at the United Center in Chicago. And I, on my way out there, I had read the book "Season on the Brink," the John Feinstein book about the Indiana basketball team in 1976-77 that won the national championship. 
and I had you know just this amazing idea in my mind of what it was going to be like to cover a personality like Bobby Knight, and a lot of it delivered. Like he was never dull; he was never boring. Every time you had your microphone on, I have a bunch of cassette tapes in a box in my garage of all these interviews that I did with Knight in group settings, one-on-one, two interviewers, times when he was in a good mood, times when he was in a bad mood, times when he was in a mood where he was eager to teach the writers. I can remember one time after a game, they they had uh, defeated a team in overtime. They beat Temple in overtime. It was a really good Temple team coached by John Chaney and A.J. Guyton, who was 0 for 10 in uh in regulation from behind the arc hit a three-point shot in the extra period to beat temple and i can remember in the post-game news conference you know you never knew if bobby knight was going to be in a good mood or a bad new mood when he came into that news conference and if he was in a bad mood you'd figure it out immediately like he could walk into the news conference he would say as he was walking to the podium anybody got a question and you would look up from you know your your spot in the media room, and Knight was already leaving the room. Like he did that one time in a news conference. Anybody got a question? I looked up. He was leaving the room. Uh, basically, you know, not in a good mood today. But there was a after that game that they beat Temple in. Knight came to the post game and he was in rare form. He was just it was an early game. I think that put him in a good mood naturally. They won in overtime. They showed some resilience. Skyton. Uh, played through a bad, a brutal stretch of shooting and hit a big shot, and Indiana won. And uh, in the post-game news conference, I asked him, you know, what were you trying to get on that last play? And he had all the writers in the room clear the space in front of the podium. He took five sports writers. He gave them each a job and said, okay, your job is you're the inbounder. This is what you're looking for. This is, uh, this is the pass we want to make. This is our option one pass. Our option two pass is this. And then he took another writer and said, your job is you're a decoy. You're just going to be over here in the corner. You're going to be uh, ask, demanding the ball, asking the ball, make the defense respect you. Took another reporter and said, hey, you're going to be setting a screen, and here's how, and here's what you're looking for. Here's what happens if the defense does this. And he taught in that moment. And in that moment, like I could see why he had had success in college basketball and why he probably demanded the kind of player who was willing to be coached, who was willing to listen, who was willing to pay attention, and uh, who didn't need to be told things twice. It's it's really the kind of player that thrived under Bobby Knight. You know, Michael Jordan and that athleticism, sure, he could have played for anybody, but I don't know if Michael Jordan in college would have been quite as creative and free-flowing as he was at North Carolina. Even I think he was restricted at Carolina to some respect. But Knight wanted his guys to play within the system and play within themselves. You know, he could not stand mental errors. He could not stand an error that a player made that a player repeated. He had a particular frustration if he talked about something. I, you know, on those days in press row, you could be right by the huddle, and you could hear him talking, and you could hear him tell a player, don't let them drive the baseline. And if the player then, you know, gave the baseline up, uh, he'd he'd go ballistic. I, I remember one time, and Stephen, you might be able to relate to this as a basketball guy. The opposing team was in a zone defense, and Knight told Antoine Randall L, who went on to play in the NFL, he told him, 
quit dribbling the ball down the middle of the court. I want you to dribble to the right side or the left side of the key. Make the defense move. Like, don't just dribble right, you know, and they inbounded the ball, and Randall L. dribbled right down the middle. Knight called timeout and yanked him, like, right away. You're not listening. Get out of the game. I have no place for that. And so he could be really difficult in those settings, but I saw in that moment after the win over Temple, like, how great he could be. He was a teacher. And and I also saw something that surprised me because, I, like you, I'd seen all the clips of Bobby Knight throwing the chair, Bobby Knight getting a technical foul, Bobby Knight getting thrown out of the game, Bobby Knight in the news conference. And what I encountered was a different character. Sure, those things happened, you know, in his past. And sure, during my season, I saw him throw a clipboard once. I saw him stomp his feet a couple of times. But a lot of other times I saw him teaching. I saw him relating to players. And I saw something that really shocked me. I saw his former players show up to the Indiana home games in droves and wear their letterman's jackets and sit in the crowd. And after the game, all they wanted to do was high-five him and tell him how much he meant to them. And, you know, there were a lot of guys who I think got a lot out of playing for him. Now, I think today's world probably wasn't made for him. Name, image, likeness in the transfer portal. He would have had guys leaving and leaving and leaving. It would have been difficult for him to build any kind of continuity because you'd have had players who didn't like what he was telling them, didn't like the constructive criticism, who would over and over probably bail out of the program. But I think he found guys who could play for him, and won at a high level. He was the winningest coach to the Big Ten Conference in the 1970s, in the 1980s, and the 1990s. Three decades, he won more games than anybody else in each decade. And that, I think, is uh, really something to, something to say when you, when you look at you know, the way that Bobby Knight delivered as a uh, college basketball coach. There certainly was a place for him in the game. And I think, too, like, you know, I went to cover Jerry Tarkanian after I had covered Bobby Knight, and it was a shock to my system to go from ultra-disciplined, station-to-station, play within yourself, don't turn the ball over, don't make mistakes, exploit the defense's weaknesses, be smarter than the other team, to a system under Jerry Tarkanian that was very free-flowing, very creative. Tark would get into the huddle, and he would tell his guys, rebound and then they break the huddle you know Bobby Knight was in there going here's the play here's what we're running and he's diagramming it and he's expecting everybody to see it the way he sees it because he had seen it for 40 years and frankly he was a guy who came up at West Point alongside uh, Mike Krzyzewski and they had that kind of uh, you know experience and respect and command of the game Um, certainly though I think he went sideways after I left Uh, I remember 1998-99 I was not surprised after that that he had the run-in with the student on campus there were things that he was doing that you know were not tolerated shouldn't be tolerated you never should put your hands on a player shouldn't put your hands on a kid on campus Um, ultimately I think um, it was kind of an eye-opener to see that here was a guy who belonged in college basketball for all those years in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that really struggled late in his career to, uh, as he was aging as well, to, to, with how the game and how kids, frankly, were changing. He's, you know, Hall of Fame coach. You know, you look at his national championships. You look at an undefeated season. You, you look at, you know, all the success stories that he has had with players, and you, you say, hey, he won a lot more than he lost. 
but clearly one of the uh, polarizing figures in college basketball. And uh, frankly, our big splash without playing the benchmark today is the death of Bobby Knight at the age of 83. Now, I go to Big Ten Media Day at the United Center in 1998, and Pete Newell Sr. had talked to me on the phone prior to me going out to Media Day. I'd never met Bobby Knight. I didn't know what to expect. i got to be honest with you. I was a little intimidated going into those news conferences, that big news conference, the United Center, and all these national reporters there. And here I was, brand new on the beat, Bobby Knight's on the podium. And Pete Newell Sr. told me, he says, hey, I'm going to tell Bobby that you're coming out to cover his team. And he says, you're not going to get any favors from Bobby, but, you know, the fact that you know me, you know my kid, it's, uh, it'll, it'll go a long way towards, you know, at least your initial relationship with Bobby, maybe establishing some rapport. And so Pete Newell Sr. told me, when you go to media day, I want you to get on the microphone or raise your hand and ask Bobby, can you win in today's game with a back-to-the-basket center? He says, then he's going to know that's you. That's the guy that knows the Newell family, and and he's going to identify, that's you. Okay, I, I know you. So I, sure enough, I got the microphone at media day in Chicago, and I said, Coach Knight, uh, can you win in today's game? With a back-to-the-basket center. I barely got it out, you know. And Knight looks at me. There's this moment of realization or recognition. And then he says, well, gosh darn it. He goes, you didn't come up with that question yourself. There's no way a reporter could come to this news conference with such a good beep-a-dee-beep question. And he said, you must have got help with that. That's it. And he went on for four or five minutes explaining that no reporter in their right mind would be smart enough to ask that question, that it had to have come from somewhere else. And only he and I knew that it came from his mentor, um, you know, obviously Pete Newell Sr. Uh, Bobby Knight, dead at the age of 83. All right, coming up, we get 4 o'clock hour, we'll play some Punch It audio. Uh, 5 o'clock hour, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. Big, big show ahead. I'll tell you another Bobby Knight story. The general, as he was known. The sports writers who covered that Indiana beat when I arrived, there's no other way to say this. They were pretty beat down. He was uh, he was hard on the media contingent that covered the team. Except for Bob Hamill at the Bloomington newspaper, who was kind of his buddy and ended up writing a book with Knight. Hamill got different treatment than everybody else. And certainly as one of the new writers on the beat when I covered him for one season... I was not getting any favors, especially uh, after the Pete Newell Sr. incident. As soon as I criticized Knight in any form or fashion, he was like, I'm done with you. But I still respected his ability to teach. He was He's a great teacher. So what, the media contingent that covered Indiana basketball, it was all these reporters who had been on the beat for like 10, 15 20 years or maybe even longer and he had he had him conditioned Knight had him trained to the point where like they all kind of knew what to do and knew how not to get barked at but I didn't as one of the new reporters very first news conference Indiana basketball's got this room down the hallway outside the locker room and this is where all the reporters are supposed to gather for the post-game news conference. Um, and uh, and you've got, like, this room. It's probably a normal-sized room, and it's got these 
these desks that you have in, in school, elementary school or high school or even college classes, had those desks that had kind of the L-shaped desktop on top of them. And they're small desks. They're not made for sports writers who have been on the road eating cheeseburgers, okay? These are little desks. And so you had these rows of these little desks that were like, you know, maybe 15, 20 desks. There might have been 18 or 20 people covering the team. And I, I will never forget, like, I go into the first news conference, and I, all the writers sat down in the desks like they were elementary school children. And they sat down, and they got this, the box score, and I was kind of looking at them funny, like, like, you know, they almost looked like they were in the Army, and they were conditioned, get in your seat, you know, sit upright, re, you know, get the box score on the table in front of you. And, and so I, I saw what Knight was doing, because... He would go to the front of the room. And by the way, if you've never seen Bobby Knight in person, he was big. He was taller than you had seen on television. He was wider and more intimidating than you'd seen on television. He was a large person when, you know, and at the time, you know, 1998, 99, he was well past his younger coaching days. He was, you know, his hair was white. He was still a large guy. I remember him being about 6'3, 6'4. And then he would get, he would come into the room and he would stand on this raised platform that was raised up about six inches. And then his podium was on top of the platform. And so when Knight walked into the room, all the writers are in these desks in this submissive position waiting to ask a question. Knight walks in, he steps up onto the six foot uh, or the six inch. Uh, platform that the that the lectern's on, and then he stands behind the thing. He looked like he's seven two. He looked like you know he was Greg Oden. You know he looked he he was Bill Russell. He was Will Chamberlain. He was standing at the front of the room, and you were kind of just looking up at him. And so I knew what he was doing. He was putting us immediately as media members in a, in a uh, position that you know he was superior to us. He was in the dominant position. They were in the submissive position, right? And so I refused to sit in the desk. I stood off to the side of all the desks with my box score in my hand, and he walked into that news conference, and he looked at the writers, and he looked at me, and he says, what's the matter with you? What do you have against, uh, what do you have against sitting in the desks? And I, and I said, I'm just going to stand. And, and I never sat in the damn desk. All those other writers for all those years, and I said, maybe if I'm on this beat 15 years and he has just sucked uh, my will out of me, then I will sit in one of those desks, but I refuse to do it. I refuse to sit in the in those chairs. And he was such an intimidating person, and I think he was comfortable intimidating people. And I think he kind of did it to kind of see how you would react, that when you pushed back a little bit against him, he didn't buck. I think he respected it a little bit. And I saw it. I saw him exert that influence against people that surprised me how they reacted. Jim Tomey, who was a... Uh, baseball player at the time for the Cleveland Indians, power-hitting uh, uh, player, 500-home run guy. You know, he was uh, Tommy was, you know, a, a star player in Major League Baseball. Tommy showed up one time to one of the games, the Indiana basketball games, and he was in the room, and Knight kind of barked at him. He knew who he was. Knight kind of barked at him, and Tommy blushed. Like, I thought, like, wow, that's a Major League Baseball player. And another time at a, at a Kentucky-Indiana game, Ashley Judd attended the game. Actress, she comes to the post-game news conference, and she sat right in the front row in the post-game news conference in Louisville, Kentucky. We're in Louisville. 
It's a game being played at, uh, I think it was on the arena that was on the fairgrounds in Louisville, and it's this neutral site game. Indiana's playing against Kentucky, and Ashley Judd shows up, and she sits in the front row, and I went, oh, holy hell, this is going to go bad. Like every one of the writers was just like, oh, Lordy, here comes Bobby Knight into the post-game news conference, and he climbs up onto the top of the thing, and oh, by the way, Kentucky won the game. And so we were all kind of going, oh, Ashley, this is not, not going to go well. And Bobby Knight looked down at Ashley Judd, and he says, what the hell is this, some kind of beep-a-dee-beep CIA movie? They let anybody in here? Like, because she was waiting for Tubby. Tubby Smith, the uh, coach at Kentucky, she was waiting to kind of pay tipper cap to Tubby. Instead, she got Bobby Knight singling her out, and I just watched Ashley Judd just melt right in the front row of that news conference, just melt in her seat, and we all kind of understood it. And, you, you know, you could see, like, Bobby Knight got called a bully, and maybe he was, but I think he was testing her. I think he was testing Jim Tomey. I think he was testing us all on some level. And I think some of it can go too far. Obviously, he, you know, he, some of the stuff he did, he didn't, you know, he's just not going to translate with people. And there was another story too, Stephen. You're going to love this one. His his longtime sports information director had a complicated relationship with Knight. And when I arrived on the beat, there was a story that was going around circulating that the sports information director and Knight had gotten into an altercation uh, in the prior season. And I asked people, what happened? What was it about? Nobody wanted to talk about it. And I eventually got one of the longtime reporters who was on the beat to tell me that um, Bobby Knight apparently came into some kind of news conference setting. There was some reporter in the room that he had told the SID, I don't want that guy in the room anymore. He's not allowed to ask me questions. The SID, sports information director, said, I can't control who comes into the room. You can't ban a media member. And... There was an altercation in the hallway, and it sounded like Bobby Knight punched the guy. And the SID came in, and he had a big welt on his face. And everybody asked him, did he punch you? And he said, no, 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 he didn't. And, you know, that I mean, that's probably the worst side of Bobby Knight. I'm sure uh, I, if I had to bet it, I bet he did punch him. Stephen, what, what are your thoughts about Bobby Knight? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no denying how good of a coach he was, uh, just based on the, the the things he did at Indiana, right? Like winning national championships and you know coaching all those really Hall of Fame players and how he got around his team. Um, you know, you talk about you knew him personally, like you covered him, so you were around it every day. Like me as a basketball player, I like I don't like the way he coached. That's not my style, but I know that, and so like I wouldn't have never if I had the chance, I would have never gone to play for him, but. The way he coached and the way he went about things, there were a lot of people. There's a lot of, you know, still is some athletes that need that in their life. They need, you know, the uh, almost the military mindset of getting after you and calling you out and going after you every day, day after day, just wearing you down. I think it's less and less nowadays. Like you talk about how he may not be successful in that, in today's world, and I think that's kind of why he left at Texas Tech when he did. You know. Uh, I believe they were like I was looking this up. I think they were like twelve and six, and he he, he left mid season. Like he probably just couldn't do it because he couldn't reach out to the kids that he really wanted to. It was a certain kid that he had to have coach. Totally. Uh, but you know, with that being said, it's like you got to respect what he did as a coach. But uh, you know, there's obviously some personal things he did that were wrong. You know, by laying his hands on people, that's not okay. But yeah, uh, it's just it's one of the things where you respect what he did. But for me, like that's not my type of coach that I would want to play for. Uh, but you know, it, it works for a lot of people. And so I, for that, you know, he was great for uh, college basketball.
There was a lot of his guys. Kirk Haston, who played in the NBA, big six foot ten center from state of Tennessee, high school star in the state of Tennessee, chose Indiana. He was a freshman on the team that I covered. Haston's uh, parents were killed in a tornado late that season. I think it may have even happened after the season was over. And because I can remember, I I was supposed to go write about it or report about it, and I couldn't find Knight. I couldn't get to Haston. He apparently had headed back to Tennessee to be with his family. And what I found out was when Knight heard that Haston's mother, I think it was mother and father, were killed in the tornado, when Haston's parents, when he heard the news, Knight went to be with the freshman and then drove him from Bloomington, Indiana, all the way back to his house in Tennessee. And nobody ever wrote about it. Nobody ever reported it. And I think that was the side of him. Incredibly loyal. Incredibly loyal, probably to a fault, incredibly disciplined, really good teacher, but obviously I think he had a temper too. Here's Bob Knight uh, talking about the integrity of NCAA sports. Keep in mind, this is a clip from 14 years ago. We've gotten into a situation over years where, where there is an integrity that's lacking in college sports. and In a way, that's why I'm glad I'm not coaching now. In a way, there's some things I would really like about it. But as an example, we've got a coach at Kentucky that put two schools on probation, University of Massachusetts and Memphis State, and he's still coaching. You know, I, I, I really don't understand that. He had logic. Where he went too far was when, you know, he obviously went too far. Here he is talking about um, whether or not he thinks coaches would look away from violations in order to keep players and just continue to win games. Oh, I don't think there's any, any question about that. I think that, that uh, so many times people get caught up with, with what's best, not necessarily what's right. And there is a big difference between, in many cases, what's best and what's right. I, I think in my season of watching him, there was a lot of wisdom that he imparted in what he talked about. I should pull up my old uh, cassette tapes and listen to him again. A lot of it is him talking about why he did certain things with players. You know, in particular, you know, um, Haston comes up again. He was a freshman that year, and I remember they were playing a game, I think it was against Indiana State early in the year, and Indiana was blowing out Indiana State, and there was a technical foul that was called on Indiana State, and so um, Indiana got to pick who went to shoot the free throw, and there was some indecision on the court about who was going to shoot the free throw. And Knight interrupted that by just blowing a gasket. Blew a gasket, started yelling at his players on the court to the point where like everyone in the arena could hear him screaming at the players. He summoned Haston from the bench, who had not played in the game or not played very much, yelled at him and checked him into the game and then said, go shoot the free throw and then yelled at him all the way out onto the court. Now, he sounded like a maniac. And after the game, I asked Knight, I said, why did you do that to Haston? You're up like 40 points, you know. Explain what you were trying to get out of that. And he said, it was a meaningless game. It was a meaningless shot. And I got an opportunity to put a freshman on the court in a pressure situation and let him get the experience of shooting a free throw under pressure. There was a little bit of brilliance in that. No, Stephen? Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's no questioning his basketball mind and the way he thought about things because it's those little things that you practice with your team that make you better you know, going down the season. And I think he understood, like, 
the most important games are the NCAA tournament and are the big time games. It's not these, you know, meaningless games early on in the season. So no, I mean it's it's one of those things where you look at legends and you look at elite players, whether it's now or back in the day, like there's reasons why they were so good. And, you know, you look at Bobby Knight and there's definitely reasons why he was such a good coach. You know, he, he was out thinking the room in a good way. And then also, I think it came back to haunt him a little bit. Just, you know, otherwise where he's out thinking the room. But, you know, you look at these type of things. These are things that most coaches don't think about. And he does. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things, man. Bobby Knight, great coach. Um, just, you know, sometimes the personal things are a little weird yeah. for me. He could. I don't think in today's game he, he wins in today's game. Because I think he had players on his team that... You know, he he recruited guys, I think, that were physical. He recruited guys that were mentally tough. He recruited guys that were dogs. Like, they, you know, they they weren't the best. A lot of them weren't the best players, but they were players who would just play hard for him. But occasionally, you know, he encountered a player like Luke Recker, who was a really good player, who had a lot of talent, who could have played in a number of places. And, you know, Recker in his college career ends up playing, I think, for three different schools. I think he played at Iowa, then he played at Indiana, then he played at Arizona. It was more of like a traditional model. And Recker, I think he was a junior. I covered only one season with him. You know, he didn't really want to be there. It, it wasn't working, you know, with Knight. His style wasn't working. He, he managed it, but it wasn't working. And Antoine Randall-L, who was a sensational athlete, you know, could play multiple positions in the NFL, he was not... Uh, not necessarily allowed to go kind of be the athlete and the player that he could be in Knight's system. And so not everybody fit. And I think in today's game, I think he would really struggle to maintain and retain players. I think players would just defect. Well, you look at nowadays, especially in college basketball, there's fewer and fewer of these type of coaches. I think Tom Izzo is one of those guys who was a micromanager, wants his hands on everything. Um, even Dana Altman, I think, to a, to even a lesser extent. like These guys want to have their hands on everything they want to call every play. They want you to be almost robotic out there, and that's just not usually how the game is played. So you're right on with it's the certain type of player that can play for a Bobby Knight, that can play for a Tom Izzo. It's not necessarily you know the highest-touted guys, but he's going to get the best out of you. And you, especially at a place in Indiana, if you don't want to be there, you don't want to play for Bob Knight, he's not your type of coach, it's going to be a disaster because it's going to be miserable day after day just the way he wears on you. So it's, yeah, it, it's interesting to hear these stories from you, John. Like, I love it. And uh, you're right. Like, he was, he's definitely one of a kind. That's for sure. Yeah, there it is. Here's Seth Greenberg on ESPN talking about Knight's legacy. Bob Knight was an innovator as a basketball coach. He set a standard for his players that was second to none. He was demanding, no doubt about it. Uh, did he cross the line at times and maybe be demeaning uh, in his day? There's no doubt about it. Either player, players loved him or hated him. Either the media loved him or hated him. You didn't sit on the fence with Coach Bob Knight. Did he have some issues with anger and, and anger management? Probably yes. But let's not forget about all the amazing things he did, the amount of lives he impacted in a positive way, his love for his players that ended up staying with him, and his brilliance, brilliance as a coach. I mean, we do this when people pass away. We tend to focus on the things that made them good instead of, you know, the things that made them human. And I think, you know, when I think of Knight and my season covering him, I don't know if you, this rings a bell with you guys. You might be too young, but there was the game there. Indiana played at Northwestern, and it ended up with um, with Bobby Knight in the middle of the court screaming at the student section at Northwestern because they were yelling at an Indiana forward named William Gladness. They were yelling, who's your daddy? 
like who's your daddy over and over again and gladness had come from a single parent household he didn't have a father in his life and bobby knight blew a gasket and went out onto the court and was barking at the student section at northwestern and i remember talking to joel prisbilla about it you know later because prisbilla was like i remember one night you yelled at at the student section and i was like i was at that game i was there it was a surreal scene, but it was a scene where you could see how um, how much he loved his players and how much he would back his players. Now, Gladness would be the first guy that Knight would scream at in practice. He was in the doghouse all the time. But, you know, he'll be damned if he's going to let the student section at another school uh, in Evanston, Illinois, yell at his guy. He was like, that's my guy to yell at. That's not your guy to yell at. But I don't know. It made Sports Center the Who's Your Daddy game, made Sports Center and it was uh it was a bad moment for that student section. I don't even know if they knew the Gladness's story, but um I remember years later looking up William Gladness to see what happened to him and I can guarantee you that, you know, uh he he knew his coach had his back. All right, coming up, we're going to play Punch and Audio. We got great sound for you. I want you to leave it right here. You got the bald faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Anna's in the studio. You texted me earlier. Steven got in my ear and you texted me. And our friend Drew also texted me all about the same time and said, Hey, Bobby Knight, R.I.P. R.I.P. It's kind of sad. Sad. To, I mean, you know that he was he was older when I covered him, but it's kind of sad. Jerry Tarkanian passed away a couple years ago. I had that kind of that same sadness. I didn't always get along with either one of those guys, but it's just kind of uh, a period of your life that uh, I was grateful that I came into contact with coaches like that because I learned a lot in covering them. I learned a lot myself. I learned about me in covering them. Yeah, I thought about you immediately because, I mean, you had such a weird experience going out to the Midwest. <laughs> you were like California boy, born and raised, well, actually born in Oregon, but raised in the Bay Area. And I hear your stories about going out there and not having the right car to drive, driving huge long distances between in the, the snow. cities. Yeah, in the snow. In the snow. These little podunk towns all over the Midwest. In what conference is that? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and covering all these games, and it's like, uh, you did. You those. That's where you learned. That's where you, you know, paid your dues as a reporter. And of all people, you wind up covering him. Like, think about the training that you got and everything that you took from that for the rest of your career. It was weird. It was a weird experience, surreal experience. And then to go to Bobby Knight, who, uh, from Bobby Knight to Jerry Tarkanian, it was like um, whiplash. You yeah. Know, just a, the different styles, different, you know. And I would tell Tark, like, you know, you just, uh, the, the happy medium would have been fine. Somebody who could really recruit <laughs> great athletes, who let them play, and somebody who was a really good teacher. Yeah. The, somewhere in the middle there of those two guys was like, you know, the greatest coach ever. John, do, the, you, do you think Tark yeah. would be a really successful coach nowadays? Sure. Or, or would it be almost like give too much to the players? He was doing it before anybody was doing it. Yeah. yeah he was the king of NIL. Yeah. You know, he, was, he had players that were getting $100 handshakes from boosters. And Tark's greatest thing was he could, he rope-a-doped you. He'd make you think he was dumb. 
he would just kind of look at you with his dumb expression on his face, like his mouth was open, disbelieve. I don't know. I don't I don't know. The kid, these kids, I don't know. These. I can't control these kids. I don't know. These poor kids, they don't have anything. They're coming from single-parent households. They don't have enough to eat. They, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And lo and behold, it's like down deep. I think he was genius, you know. He would just kind of play, like, he had a player from Italy named Andrea Bona, okay, on his, on Tark's team. And Bona's job was to kind of um, sit in the middle of the bench. He wasn't quite in the rotation. He was about the ninth guy, if you were ranking him, in the rotation. And he was from Italy. He was from Rome. And he got good grades. And he was kind of a, uh, a guy that could come in in garbage time and play a little bit. Now, he he also had like Tito Maddox who went in the first round and Chris Chris Jeffries who went in the first round and Melvin Eli who went in the first round. He had first round NBA Courtney Alexander first round NBA draft picks all over the place. Okay, guys who were going to play in the NBA all over the place, and then at the end of the bench, guys were going to get good grades and not get in any trouble. So I found out, and our newspaper found out that the players on Tark's team were all getting. Massive extra benefits, okay? This is pre-NIL days. It's a blatant NCAA violation. We didn't know the depth of what it was, but we started looking into it. And we were getting tips. And a police officer had tipped me off because he got pissed off because he went to go eat lunch at a Japanese restaurant, and he went in, and a bunch of Fresno State basketball players cut in front of him in line and went into the restaurant and sat down and ate food, and he said, they're clearly eating for free in this restaurant. They walk in, they eat, they don't pay, they leave. Happens every day. Just drop in any time between noon and 2 p.m. You're going to catch a Fresno State basketball player getting a free meal. So I wandered down to the restaurant one day, and I encounter one Andrea Bona, who is sitting in the restaurant enjoying himself one of these rice bowls, okay? And I uh, sat down with Bona, and Bona laid it all in the line because he's a good Italian kid who would just tell the truth. We eat in here. It's always free. Ted, who owns the restaurant's a big booster. All of us eat. I've eaten thousands of dollars worth of meals here, you know, and I'm just writing down the quotes, you know, and... And uh, Ted, the owner of the restaurant, I think his name was Ted Tomodachi or something like that. <laughs> Ted comes over and he's like, what's happening here? And I said, Andrea's telling me that you give him free food and everything. And, and Ted was like, I don't give him free food. And Andrea's like, yes, you do. We never pay. <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to lie to him. And at that moment, the front door of the restaurant opens and the police officer who tipped me off, like, walks no. in. No, he walks in. He's checking up on it. And he's standing there, like, with his arms folded, and then Ted thought he was getting arrested. So oh. Ted turns to me, and he's like, so I give him free food. You know, he starts confessing, right? So now I have a problem, okay? Yeah. I got the number nine player in the rotation who's saying, we all eat free, you know? And so I go back to Tark, and I go to Tark, and I sit down. I got this all on tape, too, yeah. by the way. It's all recorded because I was recording the interviews. And I say to Tark, Tark, your players are telling me they eat for free at this restaurant. No, they don't. And I said, Tark, the owner of the restaurant is telling me they eat for free. He's lying. No, he's lying. Nobody eats for free. He went into denial mode yeah. like about a seven-year-old kid would uh -huh. do, yeah. denying it from every angle yeah. until I played the tape. And then he was like, he's just making that up. <laughs> like, he's just. <laughs> and so in the end, 
Tark settled on the position of it was only Andrea Bona who was eating for free, <laughs> not everybody else. Because that's the only thing you could prove. And, and he only moment. did it once. <laughs> that's what he told the NCAA <laughs> investigators. He ate for free and ate once. And so, you, you know, if you if you had gone to Tark after he retired and said, what happened with the rice bowl? Because I know he did this. He would say, the NCAA came after me after a player who had nothing to eat, ate one rice bowl, one bowl of rice. That's how he would minimize it. That's who Tark was. You know, Knight would have been all over his player going, that's an NCAA violation. Yeah, would have probably kicked the bone off the team, oh, right? Oh, you're gone. Just a bowl of rice. Just a bowl of rice. Not you a lie if rice. you believe it. Yeah, Tark, I have letters. I have two letters from Tark telling me that he'll never talk to me again. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. There's a second letter. Right. And then you saw him. I was I was covering the Vegas Bowl years ago when I think Oregon or Oregon State was playing in it. And you were there covering the game as well. And yeah. Tark was in the press box and he saw me and he just came up and we had this big hug. Wow. And You were like old friends. You were old friends because yeah. you've been through it together. Mm-hmm. You know. And he told me when, when I left. I left, to, I left to Fresno B. Tark was still a coach. And, you know, I, I left to go to the San Jose Mercury News to cover the NFL. And... On the way out, Tark and I had coffee. We met to have coffee. And I said, I'm leaving and going, and he wished me well. And, and uh, he said, uh, you were really hard on me. And I said, I know. And he said, most of the time you were right. And, and <laughs> it was like, it was kind of like, all right, thank you. But uh, they, those guys were just opposite. But the thing you get out of that is there's more than one way to win, right? Mm-hmm. Jerry yeah. Tarkanian, national champion. Mm-hmm. Bob Knight, national champion. Could not be more different. Mm-hmm. There is place in college basketball for a variety of ways to do it. And we see that in the Pac-12. Jonathan Smith and his style and what he's doing at Oregon State is way different than what Dan Lanning and Oregon are doing. But they're both successful in their own way. Like, it's not the same. They're not even recruiting the same players. You know, Oregon's doing it a different way. And Oregon State's doing it a different way. And I, I still hope that when we see all this money and this realignment... I still hope that we look across college basketball and football and we can still see that there's more than one way to do it. That would be a shame. you got to stay true to your identity, right? I mean, you've been talking about Mark Helfrich a little bit these last expect- with the expectation stuff. Like, he tried to be like Chip Kelly. It doesn't work. you got to be different, right? you got to yeah. be yourself. Yeah, you have like, – Helfrich came in and – he rem- I mean, I remember him on this show saying, you know, we would say, like, what are you, what's your, what are you going to do? And he said, he kept saying status quo, status quo. And I said, what about your practice times? Status quo. And in the end, I was like, that's not good. Like, you have to do your own thing. You have to, uh, you have to be, you have to be you. And if you're not you, then, you know, you're just copying someone else. It's, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily going to be a good thing. I think, um, you know, I, I remember those interviews with Helfrich. Like, Helfrich is a really smart guy. Yeah. I think as an assistant coach or a coordinator, hire him in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he could work anywhere. He worked in the NFL. He could work, but probably not the head coach, you know? Just, you know, not the head coach. I can understand him wanting to maintain the status quo and inheriting a program that, you know, had seen so much success under Chip Kelly. But eventually, within a two- to three-year time frame at least, um, that's where you would have to figure out your own identity as a head coach and try to expand that within the team. Yeah, and I think 
I remember he came through the doors. He had Marcus Mariota, so you don't really want to mess with the soup. Yeah. Right? You have, you've been all over the offense. I actually think the better move would have been, at the time, mm-hmm. Oregon's contingency plan had a flaw in it. I think the better move would have been to promote Nick Aliotti As head. to head coach. Mm-hmm. He would have been a much better head coach. Don't you think they had that conversation with him? I don't know if they did because I think Aliotti had interviewed for the Cal head coaching job. Oh. And I think Aliotti would have been a great head coach because yeah. I think he could have been the guy out front, mm-hmm. the CEO of the program. He had all the experience. He really could relate to the media better, oh, yeah. talk better, and then just leave Helfrich alone to go recruit and coach quarterbacks and call the plays. Mm-hmm. I think when Helfrich got out front and he had to – be at the news conference, and he had to, um, you know, talk to media. It was you could just tell how uncomfortable he was. We had had our shots early to to win a couple games that didn't go our way, uh, and now everything's on everything's on the table as far as you know why that is. But uh, we need to to coach him better. They need to work absolutely. They need to work harder, work smarter, uh, and 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 execute more cleanly on Saturdays or Friday nights. Yeah, just there's something not all the way there and it's not his fault it's not a it's not a flaw in his personality i think that's unfair mm-hmm. to be like you know but some people are just not head coaches mm-hmm. andy ludwig the offensive coordinator at utah is the same way i think he's a genius i think he can call plays i think if you made andy ludwig a head coach i think if it was in a power five school he might struggle because i don't think he could relate to the boosters i think he'd have a hard time with media he can be awkward he's a really smart guy mm-hmm. He's like a history guy, likes to read books, but he can be, like, when I have a conversation with him, I've known him for, what, 25 years? Mm-hmm. It's still an awkward conversation to this day, <laughs> and I'm comfortable with the guy. Yeah. I saw him after the Oregon-Utah game on the field. Yeah. He's walking by, he reaches over, and he taps me on the back, and, and it's in an awkward way, hey, John, like, and mm-hmm. there was, it's kind of like when you have an awkward handshake with someone. Mm-hmm. There's just an awkwardness there. Like, I didn't know what to say to him. You just got your ass kicked on the field by Oregon. So I didn't want to be like, hey, good game. Yeah. You know? And I was like, hi, Andy. Great. Like, there he goes. But there's there's a certain it that a head coach has got to have. And the it can look different. Yes. Though. It does. Yeah. I mean, look in the Pac-12. Kalen DeBoer is not the same as Dan Lanning. You know, Jed Fish is different than Dan Lanning. Jonathan Smith is different than Jed Fish. That it can be different. Kyle Whittingham's it is different as well. Mm-hmm. There's a presence in the head coach that has to be there and understanding. It's funny because I found something out at the Utah game that I did not know. I was uh, talking with former Utah Athletic Director Chris Hill way before the Oregon-Utah game. Mm-hmm. I like to talk to people when I go to the games. I go down on the field. I'll have coffee with you know the former AD before the game, like an hour before I go to the stadium. If I'm going to be on the road, I'm going to be at the game somewhere, I want to gather intel, right? Mm-hmm. So I have this coffee with Chris Hill, who was a longtime AD at Utah. He was the AD that was there that helped put Utah in the Pac-12 conference. He started talking about Kyle Whittingham. He said, you know, Kyle's really risk-averse. And I, like, I'm like, what? Mm. He said, oh, he is a very risk-averse person. He's not a risk-taker. He will play things very, you know, he'll always do the conservative, you know, basic thing. We were talking about coaches who go for it on fourth and one and, you know, take risks and chances. He said Kyle Whittingham, not risk adverse. He says he's a very conservative guy, like at his nature. And yet he's driving a motorcycle and kind of looks like he's out there in this aggressive, you know, way. But 
in his heart, he's not that guy. Hmm. So that's interesting stuff. All right, we're going to play some Punch It Audio. We got your 5 at 5 coming up. Jonathan Smith will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour at 5.20. Make an appointment for that if you're a Beaver fan. Leave it here. 5 at 5 coming up. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will join us in the 5 o'clock hour as well. He'll be along at 5.20. Uh, how did Halloween go for you, Anna? How did it go for you? The assessment in the wake of Halloween, how did it go? Um, Pretty good. You know, no injuries, uh, no children kidnapped the, uh, from our household. Uh, you know, no one poisoned by like an apple with a razor blade in it or anything like that. So yeah, all all's all's well. Yeah, all is well. How about Stephen's household? I gotta know. Yeah, how'd it go? Yeah, you know, uh, I met up with them. They were already out and about doing their thing, but yeah, they had a good time. There was a couple uh, really intense houses. Like there was this one house that had like a fog machine, so it looked extra like scary. And then they dressed up as dinosaurs. Like one was a dinosaur, one was a unicorn. They dressed up in the yard. You couldn't tell if it was a person or not. Then all of a sudden it would move at you, and then you could oh, see the geez. person's feet. So uh, that scared the little one a little bit. Mm. But uh, yeah, there were some people that go way out for Halloween, so it was a good time. Nobody lost. Uh, uh, indeed, we all were. We're all intact. We're here. There was a kid who was trick or treating in our neighborhood who went as a bank robber. <laughs> and he had counterfeited real money. It was $5 bills, $20 bills, and $50 bills that he had made actual copies of. And they were really good, like scary good. Like, uh-huh. I don't know if I should be saying this. Like, the FBI could be knocking on the door any moment now going, where's the kid? Um, <laughs> and then, Stephen, he, th- he dropped them all over the neighborhood. <laughs> so we're trick-or-treating. And I, Anna looks on the ground with a flashlight. There's a $5 bill on the ground. Yeah. Like, it looks like a $5 bill. And I, the kids picked it up. I looked at it. I was like, damn, that looks, that's that's a $5 bill. Yeah, we were and really then, excited about it. And that. then I felt it. And I was like, the paper's not quite right. And I was like, that's not a $5 bill. And then we carried it. And then somebody came to our house later and said, I found a $50 bill on the ground. <laughs> I was like, that's not a real 50 <laughs> Kid, kid dropped the money all over the neighborhood. Now that like is that, a trick. That is a hey, bad right? trick right there. Yeah. I know. That's like that trick of gluing a a, a penny to the ground, you know, yeah. and watching people try to pick it up. Well, there you go. Uh, on us. Hey, uh, looks like the WNBA has been put on hold. I want to talk about this for a second. Um, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden writing a letter uh, with Kathy Engelbert, the WNBA commissioner, According to the letter, discussions between the league and Kirk Brown, who was the millionaire who was behind the effort to get a WNBA team to Portland, apparently the the discussions broke down. Now the plans to bring a team to the city are on hold. Uh, The the hang-up, a team practice facility was a major point. Plans fell apart in the 11th hour. Engelbert said in the letter that Moda Center renovations caused the league to pause plans to bring a franchise to Portland because the timing of the improvements coincided with the WNBA season schedule. So the Blazers are going to make some improvements at Moda Center that interfere with the WNBA uh, season. So there's nowhere for them to practice. Um, I've talked to, to Brown, the millionaire who was behind this. Yeah, He seemed really excited about it. Apparently, Engelbert and Wyden and Brown have all met. They met in February. There seemed to be momentum for this thing. The expansion fee is $50 million. 
And by the way, Portland had the Portland Fire for three seasons, but it looks like this is on hold right now. And uh, a lot of people thought Portland was going to get the team. Yeah. So um, I thought that was almost a done deal. Yep. But um, there, there'll be more expansion. But here's my thing. I don't think you can do this. Again, I'm going to point at the Blazers, and I'm going to say, look, if you don't, like if you had an owner of the Blazers who was also wanting a WNBA team, you this has synergy. There's no synergy here between what the NBA team's doing, what the WNBA team's doing, what the fan base is doing. There's no synergy, and the, it doesn't line up well for a Portland WNBA team. Like, if Paul Allen were alive, and Paul Allen wanted a WNBA team, we would have an you would have a WNBA team. Yeah, we would. Because you know what he would do? He would be like, hey, the Blazers practice facility yeah. can double as the WNBA practice facility. The team can practice there. And by the way, we won't have Moda Center renovations going on during the WNBA season. Let's move them to the months that, are, that the building wouldn't need to have a basketball team playing there. But... Ta-da, here we are, you know. Ah. It's another byproduct of the frustration of having a uh, a uh, Jody Allen running your team. Um, all right, I want to uh, turn the conversation to the college football playoff. We're going to rip through a bunch of stories here. Kirk Herbstreit saying he has no problem with the top of the college football playoff rankings. A lot of people barking about the rankings in Oregon at six and Washington at five. Here's Kirk Herbst. Right now, no issue if you have Ohio State at one because the win against Penn State, the win against Wisconsin, of course, the win against Notre Dame. I think that's why they're up at the top. You can make a very strong argument for Georgia to be at the top because they're coming off their best week of football, and I think a lot of people think they're the best team when they play up to their ability. And you can make a strong argument for Michigan. They haven't played anybody, but they've been the most dominant in all three phases. So, we're splitting hairs at the top. The cool thing is all these teams literally in the top 13 control their own destiny. It's all in front of you. You win your games, you're going to be exactly where you want to be. It's not worth getting upset about right now. Go out and win, and, and you're going to continue to climb the ladder. I actually think the committee may be stoking a little bit of, hey, we want you to be upset because I think it generates – Interest. There's no reason to to uh, release the rankings this early and then release them week by week on a televised show if you're not going to have some drama involved. So I'll uh, I'll push back a little bit against Herb Street, but I think he's playing it down the middle of the fairway, and I think he's right in that you know at least the top six or seven. I'll go to six because seven you don't really have any control because if everybody wins in front of you and you're seventh, you're going to be fifth. So, you know, I think the top six really are in control of their destiny. I don't have a problem with it. I think the committee was speaking about Oregon's um, Oregon's win over Utah. I think the committee was absolutely going, nobody goes into Salt Lake City and wins that way unless they're a really good team. And I think they were uh, rewarding Oregon in the same way that uh, they have rewarded teams in prior years. Um, but I want to pivot to a little bit to Kalen DeBoer, the Washington coach. They're number five in the rankings, the initial rankings. What did DeBoer say? Yeah, I think it's exactly that. It's the initial, you know, and um, as quickly as the season's going by, um, there's a lot of football to be played. And uh, from our standpoint, um, you know, we, we've done what we're supposed to do as far as, you know, winning all our football games and um, got some some quality wins in there. But, uh, you know, the Pac-12 right now, just uh, with the slate of games, uh, 
you know, from top to bottom, um, there's no, there's no gimmies. And, um, you know, this next uh, month for us is going to be a big month, so there's a lot of football left to be played. I think he knows his team's not playing great football, knows they're probably fortunate to still be undefeated. They didn't play well in the last two weeks, and they won both games. Give him credit, though. I think, you know, good teams do that, but Washington's got to play well this week against USC. And they must play well when they go to Corvallis in a couple of weeks to play Oregon State, I think, in the second-to-last week of the season. You don't win in Corvallis unless you play really well. And so I think it was really fortunate to Washington that the games after the letdown emotional win over Oregon, that the next two games were against the teams that have a combined four victories this season, Arizona State and Stanford. Um, but I think that's just part of sports. There's, you know, Oregon came out of that loss very focused and fired up. Washington came out of the win with a little bit, uh, hey, a little fat and happy. Isn't that funny, the psychology of that? Because you would think that you would, after a win like that, continue that momentum. But I think, uh, you know, I think you've hit on something, that it was so emotional that even in victory there can be a, a, a letdown. I, I almost think Washington's players had the Oregon game circled on the calendar in Week 7 yeah. as if that was the end of the season. Yeah, That was the Super Bowl for them. And then they won it. There was, there was tears on the – the offensive coordinator was crying. The, the quarterback was crying. <laughs> And on Washington, and it was Week Seven. Yeah, you don't win the national championship; you just beat Oregon. But you look at their schedule; it was then Arizona State and Stanford. I mean, two of the worst teams in the Pac-12. So I I think it is kind of like I understand why they did that. It'll be interesting to see how they react this week to USC because this is their first actual you know good opponent they're going to play after that Oregon game. But I mean, when you play Oregon, you look the next two weeks. Yeah, you know what? We're going to get emotional, get crazy about it. I just don't know if Oregon is going to be crying if they beat Washington in the Pac-12 championship game. I think Oregon will be like, we're going to the playoff. Jerry Allen might be crying on the broadcast, but Jerry Jerry's allowed to do that. I don't think Dan Landon's going to be crying. I'll tell you that. Uh, all right, Coach Prime talking about another 8 p.m. Mountain Time kickoff. That's where they'll kick off against the Beavers on Saturday night. These 8 p.m. games, I know you've been pretty vocal about not yeah. enjoying them. Um, what do you do for these 8 p.m. games? How do you get them prepared? How do you get them to keep the energy up for them? Uh, we, we have different ways to, to, to keep their energy up. And the guys that love this game, you have no problem with their energy being up. It's the guys that don't love the game. We just have we got to minimize that and, and, and make sure we're putting the guys out there that love to play. So uh, it's not hard for these guys to get situated and desire to play these games because, first and foremost, many of their family members are here and they want to put on a show for their family members and their girlfriends or loved ones, and they just want to and they want to shot at the next level. And they know the, not only the, a multitude of people in this country is watching, but scouts are watching as well. So I think it's on them to get themselves up, but we, we know how to motivate them tremendously. I'm a little troubled by that. It's about scouts. It's about girlfriends. It's about the people watching. What about winning for your teammates? What about winning because this is about your team advancing in the season? We'll talk more about that coming up. Anna's got the five at five. Jonathan Smith will be along after. The Raiders do the right thing, firing their coach, firing their General manager firing their offensive coordinator, benching their veteran quarterback. They are cleaning house. They did that while people were trick or treating. They get it right, Stephen. Yeah, they did. Uh, it was a little overdue for my liking. Should have been gone before. Josh McDaniels is a uh, not a great coach. So yeah, I think it was right kind coach. of kind of a news dump though. Yeah, I yeah. mean <laughs> Halloween. Halloween 9 p.m. I believe on the uh, West Coast. <laughs> 
trick or treat. You think that's how they you're broke fired. the news? They rang Josh McDaniels' doorbell, said, "Hey, trick or treat, you're <laughs> out of here. You're gone." Uh, tough for uh, for Raider fans who are, I think, already pretty demoralized. They're now going. Eh, I don't know if they're hopeful or not. I think the problem is probably ownership. They got Dumb and Dumber running the operation over there. It's a little bit out of touch. I don't really think it even matters. I think whatever Mark Allen, Mark Davis does, it'll be the wrong thing. Well, the question would be is, would you rather have Mark Davis's hair or no hair? No, no hair. I agree. I would not take Mark Davis's hair. If that's what you're asking. That's me. what I'm asking. Yeah. For us, a little, us bald guys, yeah. It's a little uh, Planet of the Apes. You know? It's Cornelius. Got Cornelius going on. This is not good. He <laughs> can't can't get it better. The worst part is they'll show him with like his girlfriend, and there's just no way to see that that relationship without knowing exactly what's going on there. He must have okay? a great personality though. <laughs> there's just no way. You look at that and you go, okay, all right, I get it. You know, I don't know. I couldn't do that. <laughs> you know. Uh, let's do the five at five. Anna's got it. Here we go. The five at five. Number one. Well, as proof that we don't really discuss these before we do them, the Raiders made big changes late Tuesday <laughs> night. <laughs> they fired head coach Josh McDaniels, general manager Dave Ziegler, Less than two seasons into their contracts. And by the way, today they benched Jimmy Garoppolo for rookie Aiden O'Connell for the foreseeable future. Um, Now, this is interesting to me because, like, what are they going to do with Garoppolo? They gave him a three-year, $67 million deal in free agency. So it's going to be costly to try and get rid of him. Yeah, they're going to pay is what they're going to do. They're going to buy their way out of it. There's some collateral damage here that nobody thinks about i you know who i thought about pretty early on who i thought about uh <laughs> jaden grant yeah former oregon state safety who came on this show every week went undrafted what did he do he signed with the raiders on their practice squad he just two weeks ago made the travel team for the first time yeah i talked with anthony newman People don't know, former Oregon defensive back Anthony Newman has a daughter. Jaden and his daughter madly in love with each other. They're just like the cutest couple ever. They are. We've hung out with them. They're just, they're great. And I talked to Anthony at the Oregon game a couple weeks ago, and he said that he told Jaden, you know, the fact that the general manager of the Raiders was having him travel, you know, he was not drafted, not invited to camp. You know, he was a yeah. practice squad guy. Now he's on the travel party. He said, that GM believes in you. They singled him out during film sessions and said, look how hard Jaden Grant is working during Raiders film sessions. And so when I saw that Josh McDaniel was fired, I said, please tell me the GM didn't get fired too. Because you got a GM that was in Vegas that really believed in Jaden Grant. So you got a lot of guys on that roster who aren't star players who were like, these were my people. And it displaces everyone. So a little bit of adversity, a little welcome to the professional world of football. But I'll be curious to see how it shakes out for uh, the Raiders and for a kid like Jaden Grant. Nice to have Anthony Newman as a mentor. I mean, are you kidding me? Really, really cool. Number two. 
The Vikings are acquiring Cardinals quarterback Josh Dobbs in a deal ahead of the trade deadline. Um, so they're trading a sixth-round pick to the Cardinals while also getting a seventh-round pick that become a, that becomes a sixth-round pick. I regret saying all of that right away. How many rounds are there? I don't know. I already forgot. Um, so they got uh, that player. And by the way, Kirk Cousins had a successful surgery. So there you go. And nice. he, what did he? He tore Achilles. an Achilles. Yeah. That's another Achilles injury. Pop. Just Ouch. popped. Yeah. Kirk Cousins hurt. Yeah. So what's the news in that, in that number two story of yours? That uh, I, you lost it was, me. It was the, Josh Dobbs too. It was Minnesota. Josh Dobbs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, they need a quarterback. But they were. I thought they were trading for Jameis Winston. Is this better than Winston, well, Stephen? Yeah, I think it is. Josh Dobbs is a lot funnier too. Earlier uh, this season, <laughs> <laughs> he went to go shopping for his own jersey at the Cardinals, Cardinals team store. They didn't have it, so and he made a funny video about it. So I'm all for Josh Dobbs over Jameis. Oh, that's Winston. right. Famous Jameis. <laughs> the humor factor, huh? Yeah. The cr- I mean, when crab legs are when you, safe. When you're at that stage and you go for Jameis Winston or Josh Dobbs, those are the tiebreakers. You know, humor. <laughs> you know, doesn't matter how good you are on the field. Who, who had more upside? Who has, you know, because yeah, that's what you got to think about if you're Minnesota. Who has the ability to have just a little more upsides? Joshua Dobbs or Jameis Winston? I think Dobbs at this point, like, We've seen Jameis throw, what, like 30 interceptions in a season. I, I think if you're Minnesota, you just want a guy that can get the ball out to your playmakers. And I think Josh Dobbs did a decent job in Arizona so far this year. So, yeah, give me Josh. There you go. How does somebody who was a Heisman Trophy winner become talked about in this way? Like, Does that just devalue the Heisman Trophy? Uh, are we making more the, of it than what it is? Yeah, we are. The Heisman right? Trophy is not the award to the best college football player in America. Then what is it? It's the award to the quarterback or running back who plays for the college football playoff team that showcased him the best. Whoever had the biggest billboard in the largest city? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of times you could make a case. I mean, look, you could go back and make a case. If you look back at the Heisman Trophy, like sometimes they're good pros, and often they're not. And some of it is, like, the best player, you know, on the Oregon team – Four years ago, might have been Panay Sewell, but, you know, everybody's talking about Justin Herbert, right? Yeah. Like, who's the best college football player in America? Could be the left tackle at Michigan. You know, it could be the defensive end at Ohio State. But that's not going to get you Heisman votes because you don't know the names of those guys. You know? On to number <laughs> number three. You have to think about that one, huh? Is it three? Yeah, it's you three. Did Raiders, yeah, yeah. You did yeah. Dobbs. <laughs> Give you a look of you alarm. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, I don't think that sound thing is solving anything. It is too. It's not. Hall of Fame at college basketball. Are you out of coach. ideas? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> no. Are you? I'm done. You were hoping you were closer to the finish line. <laughs> no, I, I forgot. I did too. The five. The four at five. <laughs> Hall of Fame college basketball coach Bobby Knight died on Wednesday. He was 83 years old. Coach Knight passed away at his home in Bloomington, surrounded by family, according to a family statement. Um, Gosh, he was famous for being disciplined and hardworking, featuring high graduation rates, and was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1991. What would you add as, you know, as we remember Bobby Knight, what would you add, I, th- I think he was a great teacher. Mm-hmm. I think his players know he was a great 
they they learned from him. He was intense. He was a disciplinarian. He could be difficult, sometimes intentionally so. There were games that I covered where um, he sent players to the media room who never played in the game as an FU to the media. And he would keep the star player from talking in the post-game news conference if he didn't like, you know, how he was being covered. He could be difficult, intentionally so. Um, but I think there was a place for him in college basketball, and I think it was fun to see what he did as a uh, as a coach. Not in today's world, though. I don't think he'd win today. What did he teach you as a reporter? Never to turn my microphone off, my tape recorder off. Uh, he always say something at the end, like right when, you know, so I just left it running until I'd walk, even as you're walking away, leave it running. Um, also, um, you know, when when teams would hold protests and the news story would be five players wore the name of so-and-so on their sneakers as a tribute in a protest that the NCAA suspended so-and-so, Joe uh-huh. McGee. Yeah. He'd say, why do we always report it that way? Why not about the seven players who didn't put the guy's name on their sneakers? It's true. There's a juxtaposition there. Hmm. Like, see it for what it is. I also think he taught me that you could do it more than one way. He was extreme. And there are other coaches that were just as successful who were on the other end of the spectrum. Moving along. We're on number... Number four. Uh, this one's interesting to me. Joel Embiid fined, again, fined $35,000 this time by the NBA for this special celebration that he does. This time it was against the Trailblazers over the weekend on Sunday. Um, I, I So it's called the, double, uh... the D-Generation X Celebration. And as evidence of just how hip and cool and, like, you know, knowledgeable I am about current pop culture. I had to Google this thing. It's like a WWE thing where he kind of gestures at his privates. <laughs> That's the best it's way. It's a I double can... groin chop. There you go. The crotch it's, chop. It's a ba ba. Yeah, yeah, ba ba. Yeah. <laughs> that we're doing it now. At the How studio. much should he give for that? Thirty-five thousand. He doesn't Ooh. seem to care because he's done it before. He did it. Uh, he was fined twenty-five thousand for doing it against the Brooklyn Nets back in January. So you know, he's just rocking it. It's really interesting. Is it though? I don't know. Um, here's the dirty little secret about fines in the NBA. The players have to give the money. They lose the money out of their paycheck. Okay. But it goes into a community fund. Kind of an NBA cares kind of thing. Yeah. That the player gets a tax write-off oh. for the money that they're fined. Okay. So it's a donation I to see. the 501c3 arm of the entity. So don't feel so bad for the player. Yeah. He's getting a tax write-off. I don't know what his actual monetary hit is on that. Because mm-hmm. I don't do his taxes. Yeah. But Well, and he gets all this good pub for yeah. being unusual. Yeah. Uh, finally. Number five. You made it, Anna. You I made it. I did. Uh, the Diamondback fans, Diamondbacks fans, uh, this is really amusing to me because apparently they got so frustrated and bored during their team's game four loss to the Rangers, yeah. Rangers that in Phoenix, at, like, 
by the time they were down 10-0... Yeah, it was a bad outcome for they them. They lost hope, and they began throwing paper airplanes <laughs> to the field. It's not a bad thing. So multiple paper, paper airplanes are cascading onto Chase Field from the stands. Uh, the announcer has to issue a warning to fans to grow up, stop throwing objects <laughs> on the field, warning them that they could face a fine that isn't a tax write-off, or even an arrest for their actions, and then the fans booed the announcer. <laughs> About the biggest excitement in all of this is when a plane from the upper deck made it all the way to the infield grass, and the the crowd erupted in applause. Rangers jumped all over the Diamondbacks. Five spot in the second inning, five spot in the third inning, ten nothing at the end of the third inning. It turned into an 11-7 game. Corey Seager played a role in it. First third of the game. Now Seager to right center field, way back there, and it goes again. Corey Seager does it again. Rangers lead the Diamondbacks three games to one in the best of seven series. Game five going on right now, middle of the first inning. How does a team wind up getting to the World Series and then playing so poorly? I mean, base, that's base, some of that is baseball. Some of that is any given day. But some of it could be that, you know, the Diamondbacks were happy to be there. And, and obviously they're not getting the pitching that helped them get to the World Series. You don't give yeah. up 10 runs in three innings yeah, and, you know, get there. So much of the success in the World Series, it's going to be really good hitting that – is peaking against pitching and arms that have thrown a lot of innings and been through postseason and the regular season. And right now, the Rangers are winning that one. Must win game, obviously, for the Diamondbacks. But uh, yeah, they're down, aren't they? They, uh, you know, they can't. What they can't do here is they have to think about this. They don't have to. They can't win three games. Yeah. All at once. Right. So you know, it's like how do you eat an elephant? Mm-hmm. One bite at a time. You got to win one game. By the way, can you win an inning? Can you get out? Can you take a lead in this in this game? This uh, big pivotal game five. I hate when people say that the pivotal game five. Aren't they all pivotal? They're all. They matter all for one. But if you don't win this one, it's champagne and ski goggles in the other locker room. Fun fact about Corey Seager, John. uh, He is now second all time in home runs in the postseason by a shortstop. Can you name the leader of all-time home runs in the postseason by a shortstop? In the postseason by a shortstop, all-time. Got to be somebody who played a long time. Is it? Is it? Uh, is it? Uh, does A. Rod count as a shortstop? He is not the, the player, but it was his teammate. It's Jeter. Jeter. Mm. Seager, one home run behind him, which is kind of amazing. There you go. Jeter didn't hit with as much power, but he was in a lot of games, so. Compiler. Uh, I was going to say Jeter, and then I thought, not enough home runs. And I thought, well, can you count A-Rod? But apparently not. All right, Jonathan Smith's coming up at 520. He'll be with us after this commercial break. All the football games in a 12-game regular season count the same in the win-loss column. They're all pivotal. They're all big. So why do I feel like this weekend's game for Oregon State has got a little extra oomph in it? I'm going to Boulder. I want to see this game in person. Jonathan Smith 
Oregon State football coach, is joining us to talk about it. How you feeling? Yeah, I'm doing solid, man. You know, in the routine of another week, and and you're right, big one uh, on the road again in, in Boulder, and see how cold it gets. It looks somewhat decent, actually, for having to kick off at eight o'clock at night. Um, the things can be dry, a little chilly, but not bad. You and I both know I don't want you to kick off at eight. You probably ideally don't want to kick off at eight, but you can't help that. And so when you find that out, do you have to kind of spin it positive, no matter what, in your own head? Like, you know, otherwise you're defeated before you even start kind of thing. Right. I try to have a mindset. We play at night. I mean, with this this is what's happened the last few years. I mean, this is the league we're in. We play at night, and that's the opportunity uh, we get. Um, and there's, let's face it, there's some buzz about a nighttime stadium. I used to love that in high school, right? It was the yes. night game and all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, we just have a mindset. Those are the, this is what we do. We play at night, and this is another opportunity. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Remember, like, uh, we used to go out on, like, a Thursday night. we do a walkthrough, and then we play on a Friday night. It was a blast. Like, you're, you know, you were never under the lights, but there was a little magic, a little ec- little uh, electricity to it. Uh, what do you see on film when you look at Colorado? Uh, yeah, some athleticism now. I mean, it starts with that quarterback. He is good. Uh, competitive, accurate. Uh, he's smart with the ball. Decision-making can create, but he is looking to throw it, and they got some big-time athletes he's throwing it to they put you out in space offensively but go fast so you got to be able to get a call get lined up and got to tackle well in space because they got some guys making guys kind of miss i think defensively this i think this is one of the better tackling teams that we're playing i mean these guys are violent go low uh, getting guys on the ground Uh, so it's a couple new wrinkles schematically defensively so um, they've got some stuff going this is a competitive group in general yeah their record I think they've lost four of the last five, but they've been in every game down to the wire except one. Um, so it's going to be a real challenge. All right, yeah, when you say that, you know, I, I often look at your team or I'll look at another team and I'll say, hey, they're different than they were early in the year. How has Colorado evolved in your mind? How have they changed? Are they trying to run the ball more? What are they doing on offense? You know, I think you've run into some good opponents that make you one-dimensional at times. Um I, you know, just going off last week, I mean, UCLA is really good at D-line. Rushing the pass or stopping the run, it makes it hard. Um, and so you're going to get one-dimensional, and sometimes the score dictates some things. Um, I, I see a team, Colorado, from start to finish that have competed really, really at a high level, won some games early, um, and have been toe-to-toe with really everyone they played except except one game. So it's a, it's a good group that continues to, to battle week in and week out. 123 other plays, but I got to ask you about the decision right before half. You've already kind of digested it, I'm sure. And uh, as you go back, um, the decision to try the fake on right before the half. Um, at what point did you know it was a mistake? Oh, when the guy gets tackled at the five yard line, um, I knew that at that moment. And again, I, I, there's always a risk, right? There's a good chance yeah. he's not going to score, and you're going to have to deal with that. I think a little bit about, you know, the game's tied. Um, this is the truth, too. Pre-game, you know, you're sitting in the locker room waiting to take the field. I'm sitting there watching Colorado-UCLA on my phone. UCLA into the half mm-hmm. settles kind of for like a chip shot field goal at the end of the half. The thing goes off the upright. They got nothing. And so some of that was in my head. I was chomping at the bit to call that because I thought the picture, and obviously executed, we got a nice game. But you, you got to be able to pump your brakes when you're asking a kicker to really run from the 20-yard line. He's eight yards behind the ball already. 
and you're asking our kicker to make a, a run like that, I mean, just bad, bad call. I like the aggression. I but you signaled it. You kind of telegraphed it on the on the kick before, right? Like I saw that on TV. I was like, oh, they were going to fake that, which I liked that one. I liked that one, by the way. <laughs> yep. Yep. I was down on myself, not just the decision to go with the kick. There was a couple opportunities to call timeouts at the, toward the end of the second quarter, that being one. We had the fake called. We were The play clock's running down. I saw it. Decided to say, you know what, we'll just back it up and take the points. Well, why are you holding on to timeouts in the first half? Like, like yeah. taking timeouts in the halftime do you no good. And so that, an opportunity to call a timeout there and run, execute the fake in the ideal setup. We wanted to run it on fourth and, you know, two to five. So that was a miss. And then uh, later, the kind of like in the half drive, Velling catches the ball down to, I think it was about the 15-yard line. There's about 23 seconds. We decided to go back on the ball. And, you know, there's some thought to back on the ball for keeping the pressure on the defense. But we had two yeah. timeouts at that moment to regroup and get multiple shots at the end zone. The way, the way it played out, we only really got one. Here's the only way it's really a loss is if you don't learn from it, right? I mean, you, you think in the next time you're in that situation, that's got to be in your head. What kind of communication are you getting in that moment? Is, is someone talking with you, or is that kind of a decision you have to figure out yourself as the head coach? We, on, you're talking about the fake field goal? The, f- the fake field or, goal in particular, or, or even a timeout. Like, is somebody going, hey, coach, maybe a timeout here, or, or or do you like to be, kind of be left alone with that? No, yeah, it's a group. So on the offensive side, we're all offensively on the headset, and really Lingren's waiting for me to say, hey, back on the ball or timeout. Um, I think in Lingren's head he was thinking timeout, um, but I said, you know, get back on it, and he calls it go fast play. So there's, there's not a lot of time to make – huge conversations yeah. there's time on the fake field goal um but of course i sat there with half the group of the offensive or the field goal unit and they were all about it and talking listen to the players sometimes bite you there you go uh, yeah it's true great idea great idea here let's do it <laughs> uh, you know what well, you we, did do it, it. we did it last year down in fresno though we did it last yeah. year in fresno sat there and coletta wants to change the play to a different one listen to him and it worked out all right i know i know you know yeah you know what you do the first time you go to for a field goal against colorado you run a fake nobody would see it coming <laughs> nobody nobody's expecting it <laughs> just no like damn would. it damn it we get that it's there you know, like we know it's there. Jonathan Smith is with us, Oregon State football coach. Um, look, uh, you guys, you know, the rankings come out, and I thought this was a testament to what you guys have done. You're at 16. Nobody's surprised by it. You're there. You're right in everybody's face. You continue to win. You're only going to move up. And I, the way I see this thing, because you're playing some of those ranked teams coming down the stretch, I think I still think you got a, a puncher's chance if you win out to maybe get to Vegas. I mean, it's still out there for you guys. Yeah, there's still opportunity. Obviously, the setback last weekend kind of hinders some of that, but we want to set the stage to play bigger games. We've got to take care of business and, and do it on the road, which we've, you know, both our losses on the road. We've got to, we've got to find a way to do that. Um, and again, each week, you never know how this league's going to turn out. I know these teams have this many amount of losses type thing. Week right. in and week out, you never know. Um, and that's why you got to play the game and play well on Saturdays. Yeah, you got two losses in conference play, but you know, as I map it out, you you know, if you won out, Oregon would have at least two losses. All Washington has to do is lose to a USC or um, you know a Utah a game they could lose, or you guys, you know, obviously you'd put a loss on them. And so uh, all of a sudden, I go, this is uh, this is kind of interesting coming down the stretch. I think it's a great conference. The fact that you guys have so many ranked teams, uh, the Pacific Northwest has three of the top sixteen. That's that's incredible. 
Um, you know, but I know you you got to focus uh, on what you guys are doing. Uh, how are how are you guys health wise coming out of Arizona? Yeah, uh, we got a, a few guys nicks and, and bruises. Jake Levengood's going to be a late late game time decision. Our starting center, he he went out early against Arizona. I think he's doubtful right now. Um, still hopeful on the a couple DBs in Ryan Cooper. We can kind of see what it looks like tomorrow. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, and even. Else. But those two are, are big pieces, We'd, and that's the update on those two. I, I like what Aiden Childs does. I like that you guys have kind of brought him along. What would it take to get him a little more more than one series? Are you guys molding yeah. that? Uh, we did actually. I had molded a little bit, and I was, I was talking to Lingard one, whatever it was, middle of the week. You know, he, the previous games had gone in. He had great field position. He ends up only running four or five plays. Yeah. And so if that were to take place again, do we, you know, throw him back out there? Um, you know, the way it played out, he got a, a field position where he was able to operate some plays. He threw that ball 60 yards in the air on third down. I know. Um, which was awesome. Um, but at the same time, I'm telling you, where DJ is at, we really like where DJ is at. I mean, this guy's throwing it confidently, getting us the right plays. Um, you know, we, we had opportunities on a couple of plays in the past game last week we didn't get. Not all on DJ, but it could help us a little bit. So I do feel that we got two guys uh, that we can go out there and score points with. Do they create a problem for the defense? Are they are they different enough to create a problem? Uh, you know, that'd be interesting to talk to a defensive guy. I think uh, you know Aiden's probably got a little bit more top end speed when he pulls the ball or runs with yeah. it. Uh, but we're not we're not really calling a different offense when when Aiden's in versus DJ. No, yeah, when he pulled that one ball and he went around the corner. He's just fast. I mean, he's just – you could see the defense going, oh, crap, like he's going to get to the oh, corner. Yeah. You know, that would have been a huge hit if those guys yeah. would have blocked better for him out there on the edge. I know. Yeah. Got to get that done. All right, I will be in Boulder. I'm excited to see you guys play. I know it's a late game, but I, I think it's – you know, those late games have always been fun. Uh, on the road, any explanation to what you th- see happening on the road, or is it just hard to win on the road in the Pac-12? Yeah, I think it, you know, it starts with that. It's hard. I think you – I don't know this for certain, but if you looked at all the records, home versus away, I bet the away records aren't as good. Um, you know, just for us, we're going to be able to finish games and play for 60 minutes. And, you know, I think we've handled the crowd pretty well. I was pleased last week. You know, we didn't have issues procedurally, offensively, and all of that. But, it, you know, the home team's got some energy to it. The crowd's into it. You got Home teams play well oftentimes, and we got we got to play better and, and finish the game. Are you having fun? Has this season been fun to you, or is it always kind of just stressful? In you know, you know, it, 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 do you, I, I guess I'm getting at like we've heard some coaches. Dabo Sweeney says, you know, the appreciation is uh, not as uh, not the same. You know, coaches will say the, the the losses are harder than the wins are joyful. You know, do you relate to that? Yeah, oh yeah. There's something because it's the gravity of losses. You put so much into this. It's just more than stings. I mean, it hurts. And so uh, that's not easy, but also you got to be able to re- respond and get back to work. I have had some fun this year enjoying watching, you know, just this team kind of grow and battle and compete and learn and make a mistake, make some plays. Uh, that's how really every season goes. And so I intentionally tried to, to enjoy that, watching kind of coaches prepare and strategies that work, strategies that don't. And you know, look back on the thought process. and So, yeah, I mean, that's why I love coaching, strategy and relationships and competition. 
home teams are 37 and 18 in this year in the Pac-12. But if you eliminate Arizona State and Stanford, they're 35 and nine. So if you take yeah. out the two bottom teams, the home teams are winning, you know, regardless. So yeah, you got you got your Colorado's two and two at home. So put them in a two and three situation. That's what I say. Yeah, and again, one of their losses, I mean, they're up 21, 29, nothing at half, and the Stanford turns around on them. That's why you got to finish games. And yeah, it's, it'll be good. I always say you got to watch a team, too, after a loss, and you kind of see how they react after a loss. It tells you about their culture. I'm not, I'm not that worried about you guys, but did you see it in practice this week? Or guys got their pep in their step? Yeah, the guys are guys are working. Uh, I'm I'm not concerned with some type of lingering effects of a loss. They're back to work. They're excited about playing this game. They know still a lot of good things in front of us if we can handle the environment and win a couple more games, setting the stage for things. So no, these guys are locked in and excited. I'm giving you all kinds of stats. You're one and zero this year after a loss. You were two and one last year coming out of a loss. So here you go. Okay. Opportunity. Yeah. All right. No doubt. Get at- Get out no doubt. All right. Thanks for joining okay. us. Appreciate you. Yeah. Appreciate you. All right. Take care. There's Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. Love that. That was more of a conversation than an interview. I'm glad that everybody got to listen to that. Stephen, takeaways from that conversation with Jonathan Smith. I, I was talking to Jude about this. I found it interesting the when you questioned him about you know the fake field goal and things of that nature. He he's usually so confident in all of his answers. It wasn't that he was disingenuous, John. I just thought he kind of came across. It just was a weird situation. He kind of pulled the old, ah, oh, shucks, it didn't work. Like, it was weird. You know, it's a bad call, but, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. It just, I don't know. It just didn't seem like a Jonathan Smith answer, but I don't know what I was expecting, right? Like, I don't, yeah. I don't want him to be like, no, that was a great call because that's a, that would be a terrible situation. So I, that that was my biggest takeaway. I was like, I'm still trying to process what what he was saying in that situation, but um, no, it, you know it's good. I think that he owned it and he said it was the bad call. It's all on him. I think he also made a good point of uh, you know being on home and road. The situation we we've talked about that you know when we pick the games against the spread, those home teams, especially home favorites, they win all the a lot of games. And so I think going into this Colorado game, you know I expect a big win, but at the same time. Oregon, Oregon State's got to be ready. Like this Colorado team, they're four and four. They need, they're fighting for that bowl game. Like six and six wins is in their in their grasp. So Oregon State's got to come out and play hard on uh, Saturday. It's interesting because we get him on Wednesday. I wonder if the answer would be different on Sunday. You know, because he's had so much time to. He's been asked about it in the post game on Saturday night. He's been asked about it on Sunday. He's talking with the staff about it and his team about it on Sunday. He's talking about it on Monday. He's kind of leaving it behind on Tuesday. And then here I come on Wednesday bringing it back up, bringing up old stuff again. And he's got to deal with it again. I, I just kind of wonder if his answer would be different. I just I was struck by the fact that he said he was watching the UCLA game while, you know, during warm-ups. His team's starting to do warm-ups. He's on his phone. He's kind of looking at UCLA Colorado because he's got Colorado in the next week. He sees UCLA right before the half miss a chip shot field goal and he says that's in his head and then and then he said a little bit later after that he got on himself a little bit after the game because he was like I took my timeouts to the locker room at halftime why am I not calling a timeout there I hadn't really thought about that so I I think it's good that he's trying to assess his own performance I think a lot of times, if you're in denial, you're not going to learn from something. You're you're just going to defiantly say the play was there. 
it just was asking too much of a kicker to run 20 yards against a Pac-12 defense and, and score a touchdown. And it's gone what, what, what we said today about we talked about coaches and you know getting stuck in their ways. He even said, you know, he was chomping at the bit cuz they had practiced this. Like he wanted to run it and he was looking for a situation to do it and so it just got in his head like I'm running this no matter what. And it was obviously the wrong situation right before the half and that was just because you know they got the delay game before. So it was it's one of those things where you hope, you know, we think Jonathan Smith may be the best coach in the conference, but you're always looking to get better. And it is nice to hear, like, he actually is evaluating himself and looking to get better as he, uh, you know, continues his career. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I asked him about Aiden Childs and DJ Uyengalele, and I don't know what you heard there. It was kind of a non-answer from Jonathan on, you know, what, what would it take to get Childs more? But he said... I've been thinking about it. And he said, we've been talking about it. I actually got the impression, maybe this is just me trying to read his poker hand, I got the impression that he wants to play Childs a little more. But there's probably a little hesitation in that you don't want to destroy DJ's confidence, but I think you got to get Aiden on the field more. I just think they're be- they're more dynamic. Yeah, he's- I think he's going to throw some picks. I think he's going to make some mistakes. He's young. But I think they're a little more dynamic on offense with with Childs in there. I heard that too, and I took away as that he loves himself some Aiden Childs, and I don't know I don't know that he know that thinks that he's better than DJ right now, but he definitely wants to get him on the field more than I think maybe Brian Lindgren does, um, where he's just a little more comfortable. You know, I haven't put DJ out there with all the experience, but I I, I think Jonathan Smith looks at Aiden Childs and says. Like that's a dude right there. That's a guy who can win, you know, offensive player of the year or even, you know, bigger than that. So yeah, I, I heard that and it was very interesting that he quickly changed his answer from right. I to we. Right. And I and here here's the thing with DJ. Like I like DJ's game, but he doesn't quite have the finesse in the short game. And there's something going on when DJ's on the field in the middle of the play where he's he's not feeling the game. He's waiting. He's a half a second late delivering the ball. He's a half a second late deciding to run. If you know nothing's there, I'm going to tuck it and run. He's just a half a click late. And I'm, I'm watching this Arizona game on TV because I'm in Salt Lake City. I've watched Oregon play already. And I'm watching this Oregon State-Arizona game. And in the second half, DJ's in the pocket. The protection's breaking around. It's evident he has nowhere to go with the ball. And I'm going, run. I'm saying that out loud in my hotel room. Run. And there's about a half a second delay, and then DJ starts to run, and a defensive lineman reaches out and pulls him down for in no gain on the play. Like, and if he takes off, maybe he's getting five or seven yards. You know, maybe he's getting. And I think Aiden Childs back there gives you that added threat that he could run for a touchdown at any time the the play isn't there. I think Aiden is going to make mistakes. I think you're going to get some interceptions that you're going to go, ooh, that's a young guy, but. I think you're getting to the point at Oregon State where you got to think about playing him more. I'm not saying he has to start, but I think he needs more than a series. I think he needs to have two series, give him a third series, and I'd have to look back, but I'm almost sure. I think he scores on like 80% of the drives that he engineers. He scored a touchdown. And so I I think it's going to become increasingly difficult. And if you're going to make a change, you don't make the change against Washington. You don't make the change against Oregon. If you're going to make the change at quarterback or you're going to play him more, you do it against Colorado, you do it against Stanford, you do it in the next two weeks, and you get him ready and you see what's there. You can always back off it and let DJ play the whole game against Washington or Oregon if it's not there. 
But I want to see a little more Aiden Childs in these next two games. Leave it here. Get the BFT. I saw a video today of a guy in a clown suit with a um, with a chainsaw, fake chainsaw, on Halloween, just scaring the bejesus out of a kid who was in a in a in a wagon being pulled by his mom. Uh, how, like, what's the proper amount, or the normal amount, or the acceptable amount of terror that you can impart on a child on Halloween, Stephen? I, I don't know. I. Not cool. And it's not cool, especially if it's a kid in a wagon. Like that means they're probably really young. Yes. You know, I think about my four-year-old. Like he's usually pretty not scared of a lot of things, but he gets scared on Halloween. I think he, it frightens him a little bit. And it's like I couldn't imagine going up to him and scaring him on purpose. Like that just I don't know. I feel like you're kind of a weirdo when you're doing that. I'm gonna send you this video. I'm gonna have you just watch it and live react in real time. <laughs> just watch. I just texted it to you. Okay. Take a look at it, and, uh, you know, it's a clown, a guy in a clown suit. Poor kid is like, kid's got to be two, three years old at the most, and is scared of this clown-looking guy no, ma- <laughs> no matter what. It's not funny. I shouldn't be laughing at it. My, my kids had one house that they were afraid to uh, go up to the doorstep on. It was just a little too scary. Yeah, see, I'm not I'm not a fan of what this video represents here, John. No. No, I mean, I mean, the clown got right in the little kid's face, too. No. Kid no. had nowhere to go. Kid couldn't get, couldn't escape. Clown's <laughs> running up to the wagon, scaring the heck out of him. Yeah, the wagon made it even worse. Because, I, I'll right. tell you how bad it is. I'll tell you, you shouldn't be scaring kids. I'll tell you how bad it is. I was six or seven, okay? And something happened to me, trick-or-treating, that um, scared me so bad that when I was trick-or-treating last night, I was looking out for it. Okay? Let's, all these years later, decades and decades and decades later, okay? I'm six years old, and I'm trick-or-treating with Jeff Garcia, quarterback who goes on to play for the 49ers and the Eagles. And Jeff and I were a year apart. So he must have been seven. And we were doing what kids who are six and seven do. We were running ahead. Okay. We were running ahead of our parents and our other siblings. And Jeff had two or three younger siblings. I had two younger siblings. Jeff and I would run ahead to the next house. Our parents were saying, wait up for us. Don't go ahead. We were like a house or two ahead of everybody. And we go running up to this one house. And it had kind of a entryway that was covered and extended a little bit away from the front door of the house. And I'll never forget what happened. We went running up to the house, and the minute we knocked on the door, a giant sheet dropped on all sides of us from the rooftop. And the lights flashed on and off, and horrific music played that was screaming. And I went running through the sheets and fell into the bushes. Jeff went running through the sheets and fell into the bushes, and the people on the la- on the roof were laughing about how they got this six and seven year old and scared the hell out of him. I'm now grown up. Decades later, I'm an adult. I've got a six or seven year old and a nine year old with me trick or treating, and I am going door to door. And what am I doing? I'm looking up at the roof on every house. I'm checking the roof to make sh- make sure no one's up there. It's it's it scarred me. I may need therapy for this. Can you ever remember being that scared? 
No, not that scared. Not that I can think of off the top of my head. No, like I just, I've, I've, it's kind of like the whole ocean thing with me, John. Like I'm not gonna put myself in that situation. I'm, I'm a scary cat at heart. So like I'm always, anytime I've watched a scary movie when I was younger, I always was like telling myself, this isn't real. This isn't real. I can't believe this is real. Like this, it's fake. It's fake because if I thought it was real, I would get in my head and have nightmares. So I just, I can't put myself in those situations. I uh, put myself in one of those situations. So I always think about this because we we put out decorations. We did a uh, Anna put it on her Instagram if you want to see it. But we we did a uh, the girls and I put together this skeleton that we saw on TikTok that somebody had Jimmy rigged. They uh, they made it look like a skeleton uh, was in a biohazard situation, and the skeleton was vomiting um, toxic waste into a into a giant bin. And so what we did is we got a trash can. We made it look like green slime was coming out of the trash can. We ran a pump from inside the trash can up through the skeleton and ran it out of its mouth so it was just running all the time. To me, that's not scary. That's kind of amusing. And we put uh, tracing dye into the trash can so it was uh, the, the, the vomit looked like it was uh, fluorescent green. And pe- little kids were walking up and looking at it and going, oh, that's cool. I don't want to scare some kid. I don't want, I don't want to traumatize some kid in a wagon. That's not making it for me on Halloween. I'll tell you what's making it for me. Ending up with a butterfinger at the end of the night left over in the bowl. Well, I think there's that, there's different Halloweens, right? Like I think for, you know, teenagers and you know, young adults, it's all about just Instagram pictures. And then I think for adults, it's about like uh, you know, taking pictures of their kids and like you said, getting the butterfinger for yourself, stealing them from your kids. But then for like little kids, it's about candy. For that middle age, it's like they want to be scared. There's like four different Halloweens, but we all have to combine them into one. We need to figure out what we're doing. We do need to figure that out. And then I also noticed that you get the um, teenagers. And what age is it too old to trick or treat? Because I, I have a philosophy. If you're going to put on a costume, I'm going to give you a candy bar. But how old is too old to show up at, at your doorstep? Um, I would say at the oldest, if you're a teenager, I don't want to see you. What if they're polite? No. Well, it depends on what ha- time. Here's my yeah. beef. Is, yeah, when do you cut it off? Well, okay, so we still had our lights on, and the kids were in bed. It was 945. I hear a, a, a ding-dong at the doorbell. Too late. Way too late. I even told we're them, I said, closed. hey, go away. I gave them just like one piece of candy, and they were really loud. I said, get out of here. But yeah, I didn't want to start. You know, I don't want to get yeah. angry or anything. But I yeah, because they nice. know where you live. They yeah, where you so live. Yeah. it's one of those things. I gave them candy, but I'm also like, hey, we got kids, man. Don't wake them up. What, what, did you turn your lights off? I did right after that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, if your lights are on, that's on you. Well, it's 9.45, John. Uh, they're, they're not keeping time. They're just looking for who's still up at that hour, you know? You're uh, looking you, for an open open bar. They need to know. They need to know at that age. 9.45, it's way too late. Our last trick-or-treater came at about 8.30, and that was it. That seems and, like but, the cutoff. 8.30 seems like a perfect yeah, time. Nine, I, I guess, maybe. I went lights out. Uh, after that, like not, I waited about ten minutes more, and then I ate a Butterfinger second one, and then I and then I went lights it lights out. I'm cutting it off. The rest are for me, and so I was done. But I also know that there was when we were out. So we left. We left Anna's dad, seventy seven year old Taiwanese man who had never experienced a Halloween before. We left him at the house, and we said people are going to knock on the door. They're going to they're going to say trick or treat. You're to give them one candy bar. Now that's some like, rules, man. That... He was like, he was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, what's gonna happen? And we were like, this is called Halloween. They don't do it in Taiwan. That people are gonna knock on the door, give them a candy bar. 
So I can see the camera in the house. And so I'm kind of watching them as we leave the house. Here comes a group of trick-or-treaters. They come up to the steps. Ding dong. He opens the door. And I watch eight kids go into our house. <laughs> so I was like, he just let everybody into the house. He doesn't know he's just supposed to give them a candy bar. And so we had to be like, hey, they're not supposed to come into the house. Just give them a candy bar and send them on their way. One candy bar, big guy. All right. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time. We're back tomorrow.